I was going to tell the story Joe Ramp told to me about about Pixar and and what happened for Toy Story One because it wasn't online. If you go online and Google it, there are whole blogs. Where people say what happened, and I knew the whole story of what he explained to me anyway. Yeah, I got all ready to put up a YouTube video about it, and this is in probably 2007 and one of the high times of my career. And I started filming. I said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. Welcome to the Mike Squires and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Mike Squires. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Mike Mozart. You may know Mike Mozart from his failed toy videos on YouTube, but that is just scratching the surface of Mike Mozart's career. And in this episode, we cover a lot. Mike's done illustrations for Disney, including The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, DuckTales. He's also designed products for Disney, along with Hasbro, Mattel, and Crayola. And he told me what it was like working with Disney. We also talk Pixar. Mike tells me the truth about Toy Story, a story that Joe Ramp, one of the creators of Toy Story, told him. And if this couldn't get any crazier, Mike tells me how his collaboration with Peter Kyle, Picasso's renowned assistant, came to be. And Mike tells me the honest truth about why his relationship with Alec Monopoly fell apart. Needless to say, this is going to be a crazy episode. It's going to be my longest episode to date too, but my goal with this episode was to hopefully make you guys feel as inspired as I did when I met Mike Mozart. So what better place to do it than his personal studio? And I've added in chapters to make this episode easy to navigate. And make sure you support your boy by hitting that subscribe button on YouTube or a follow on your preferred podcast platform. Now, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Mike, how are we doing today, dude? I'm doing great. Man, I'm really excited to do this. I'm thankful to be here with you today. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we hop straight in and we talk about your YouTube career, dude. I know that you were one of the first YouTube OGs. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was already online with videos before YouTube happened. There were other sites. One was called iFilm, which which still exists today as Spike TV, if that still exists anymore. I don't even know if that exists anymore. You know, things move along pretty fast when you're old as I am. So um, I was already on that. I was already experienced in putting videos up online, but no one was watching them because everything was was slow speed. Most, most of the country had dial-up until the early 2000s. YouTube was in the right position right there where high-speed internet started coming to people's homes. You know, the fiber connections and the, the high-speed different connections. And when YouTube premiered, I knew about their alpha test when they were to go live with it. And I signed up immediately when it happened. I mean, I knew the day and moment was going to happen. And at the time, they had some sort of a counter on it. And I was the 54th person to sign up for YouTube, 2005. But when I started on YouTube, and I saw the videos are still posted, but they're private, I began teaching artwork. My whole life has been about teaching and instructing people how to do art. Art has been my life. And I thought, I could do like the Bob Ross thing on YouTube. So those videos are still sitting there, and they're still pretty good. But as I was doing the videos, I would mention about my toy career. I designed toys and created products for people. And I had a wall in my studio. And behind me was all these toys. And they said, what's, what's with the toys? You know, people would always ask. Well, that's my wall of shame. Those are the worst toys ever made in history. <laughs> I would go out to toy manufacturers and stuff, and I'd say, wow, this is a really bad toy here. You shouldn't run this. Oh, yeah, but we think it's funny to do. I should have one of them in my hand right now. Sorry. But there are these water guns that are... Um, that have inappropriately shaped and placed triggers. Oh, for I Batman. remember, like the Batman one, dude. Yeah, the Batman one, Cinderella, all you know, the Seven Dwarfs, everything they did has these inappropriate triggers. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, everything. 
And when I first went there, I said, you know, you can design these so they're not so inappropriate where the water comes out their mouths, the plug goes in their butts, you know, and the trigger's right there. Yeah. And um, they said, no, no, we did it that way. Isn't that funny? You know, isn't it funny that you think that like little five-year-olds could be playing with some guy's dick? Is that funny? It's actually not that funny. No, it's not that funny. I said, I don't find it funny. I never did work for the company. It's called Alvin Toy Company. Wow. And that was one of the first incidents I ever in, in found out that there's an awful lot of problems with the toy industry at the time. Okay. So I said, I didn't tell them I wasn't going to do it. Can you give me a sample of every one you got here? So I took a sample of every water pistol that they had, including all those. And I actually showed them in my YouTube video. And I started to create a case of them because I used to design products for all the major toy companies. They would come to me and I would say, okay, you've got problems with this product. Let me show you problems in the past. You understand what I'm saying. So there were a wall of shame. I would show prospective clients for toy design. And when people spotted those, they said, can you do a video about what these, these are funny looking things. And I would show them and say, look how stupid this are. I mean, what were they thinking? I mean, really? Which became my tagline because I had so many bad toys and um, I started doing those in the course of my, I would do a little bit of that when I was doing the paintings and nobody wanted to see the paintings anymore. They wanted to hear about all the stupid toys. I remember seeing like Pluto's bone. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was a a Dora that was like in a floating kind of phallus. Yeah, which is absolutely insane because those videos for someone like me. Those videos are my childhood, yeah, and, dude. I remember and, seeing those. And the dinosaurs that had the ding-dong there, you, that was the trigger to make them happy or excited. Which is insane that they would do uh-huh. that. It's crazy that they thought it was funny, you know? And it's like... Yeah, but it was it was a problem that was, at the time, very endemic in the toy industry. Unfortunately, a lot of people with very bad thoughts was led to something that involved a lot of children. And I exposed it at the time. My whole reason of really going forward with that is, look what's up with all these toy companies. And I would even say, who thought this was a good idea? I mean, really. The person at Fisher Price is gonna have a big meaning. Meaning, remember, I worked with these companies. No, I know. Okay, who came up with this idea? Who started this project here? So what I basically did is, is I became the voice of reason for toys. And there's only a few toy companies that never did anything. One was Milton Bradley, never did anything inappropriate I ever found. And Hasbro never did anything. Milton Bradley was an educational toy company. They did educational products. Hasbro was Hassenfeld Brothers, and they did children's books for learning. They did coloring books. And they had teachers that ran the company to make sure everything was educational and appropriate. That was Milton Bradley. And um, and Hasbro was is linked to Milton Bradley and the Hassenfeld Brothers. That's Hasbro. How do you feel that your videos impacted the toy industry. It impacted it tremendously because I was one of the top 20 YouTubers as soon as I started doing them. My videos were seen all over the world and I was called immediately by toy companies, immediately. What do we have to do to get that taken down? I'm not taking it down, just don't let it happen again. I'll never have to make another video about your company. And they started cleaning up their act. The only company, and one of the the big problems I had early on is I've designed a lot of toys. Licensed character toys. One of the few products, product lines, I very rarely did anything for. I did try some, but I didn't. Oh my God, I could go on for hours about this. No, I'm excited. I can't. No. We got a lot of other things to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we could stay on YouTube for a second. We could stay on YouTube, but this is sort of like linked to YouTube yeah. too. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so I impacted the toy company. The toy company people called me, they spoke to me. Wow. And they said, How can, what do we have to do? 
And I said, well, you have people that are working there that probably shouldn't be. Mm. And I'm not again, I'm not saying go fire people, but you have to be very cautious who you're hiring and maybe do a little bit of a, a more of a background check on them. And I really revolutionized the toy industry into thinking that way. Yeah, maybe we should be a little bit more careful about what we're putting out there in the hands for kids. And let's look at the people who are actually making, designing, and overseeing the production of this material. And I had, a, and up until YouTube came out, I was still designing a lot of toys. I still kept designing toys as YouTube started. I actually stopped designing toys and products for a short while while I was doing it. I didn't think it was appropriate for me to be reviewing toys if I'm actually designing toys at the same time. Yeah. And um, I didn't want to, for people to think that I was going after competitors' products or toys if I had my own out there. And I was doing a lot of Crayola products at the time. And I've tended towards that type of thing. And I've never, I haven't reviewed any Crayola products ever on my thing. I won't review anything associated with me, at least not while it's out in the marketplace. Now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about some of the products you designed and some of the companies that you worked with? Oh my God, where do I start with that There's one? There's so many, dude. I think people are going to understand all the layers of Mike Mozart after this yep. because you're a very dense, talented person. And I mean, like, mm -hmm. I remember the first time I came here and I was overwhelmingly inspired and I just yep. want to capture that feeling today that I felt the first time I was here too. So, all right, let's let's get into it, dude. The, okay, the products. Well, I am. I am just want to say that what I've discovered in books and everything I've done in my whole life is that there's this old saying: when one door opens, like when one door closes, another door opens. Yeah, my life has has been kind of like that, except it's like when one door opens, the other one stays open, and it keeps going through a whole hallway of doors that just keep opening and opening and opening. And a lot of my life is because of my youth, and you'll see why this sort of leads to what we're saying right now for products, is when I was young, I thought it'd be a cool idea if I was on TV. And I never intended to be on TV. Is that, um, and unfortunately, there's, everything in my life is a big shaggy dog story. Yeah. But when you see what happens, it's like, this is what led me to children's books and things, is, um, um, Matter of fact, I have to I have to think at what point to start this because I did children's books when I was 15 years old. Yeah. The reason that this is an important question right now is my whole career starts with my mother. When I was a baby in a crib, my mother was an artist doing Walt Disney children's book covers. Wow. That's where it really started. And I used to watch her paint her book covers while I was literally there. When I was old enough to stand as a toddler, I had a little easel there next to my mother, and I would paint whatever she was painting right alongside her. She showed me how to draw everything and how to paint everything. So she sort of developed that whole style and look, which is very Disney-looking. My yeah. overall style is very Disney because I learned it from my mother when I was a little, little baby. And so imagine being educated from the time you're in a crib to being an artist. And I had gone to, that was the time when I started going to Maine a lot. There was a family farm in Maine I spent a lot of time on as a child. And it, no television, no radio or nothing, but there was plenty of paper, pens, and pencils to draw on. And if you're bored and out there, you either read comic books, which I had plenty of, which I like Richie Rich because I want to be rich someday. Yeah. But I would draw pictures all day long of the farm, my life, and everything. So... When I turned 15 in Connecticut, you could get a driver's license in, in Connecticut at 15 at the time. It wasn't really a license. It was a learner's permit. But it's just a piece of paper with your name typed on it you signed. Yeah. And there was no restrictions. And by the time I was 15, I had already been driving in Maine for years because Maine had farm plates. 
And if you you could be an eight year old kid and drive a truck around town, that's with insane, no license, dude. no insurance, or nothing. It, they still have that in Texas and other states right now. So I was a, a very experienced driver, and when I got that piece of paper in my hand, I took off for New York City. Yeah, I'm going to New York City. I'm going to try. I'm going to bring in my portfolio drawings. I want a book, and I looked old. I looked old at the time. I could have easily passed for 24. I grown my beard out like it is now. That that's a whole other story. But my beard grew out like this easy when I was that age. So my face grew out because I looked a lot older. I went to New York City. I charmed the ladies there because they're all all our directors were women. And I went. I came back the first day with a book project that paid a total when I when I got it all passed and finished of 3,800 bucks. Wow. Okay. And that was a lot of money then. Yeah, that was and, a lot of money. And for that age, too. Yeah, that age. But they didn't know. They thought I was in my mid-20s. They That's thought true. I was 25, 24, 25 years old. And I was very blonde. I was pure blonde with this big blonde beard. And I was this rip farm kid because I was on the farm. Yeah. Do you remember what that project was? Like what, what the drawing was of? Oh, my God. What was the first one? The first thing I did was for a company called, I want to say it was Landau, but it's not. It's not modern publications. I did work with modern publications too. It could have been modern publications. I did a a Beatrix Potter book yeah. with them. Yeah, a coloring book with them. But it was a lot of money. You see, children's books have a lot of art in them. If you do a coloring book, I did a lot of coloring books, is that they would pay ten to twenty five dollars a page. Oh, but wow. they're sixty eight pages. Okay. That adds up real quick. That adds quick. up pretty fast. So if you say if you get if it's a if the book is in color and it's 68 pages. Usually you got at least minimum $100 a page at the time in the 70s. And then you get a book that's 68 pages, it's $6,800. Wow. And then what they do is they write out a contract and they give you an advance check of half a front. Wow. So I came back from, from New York City with that first job and it was, I gotta think, I'll think of what it was in a minute. But I came back with that check and I was thinking, Holy crap. You know, <laughs> at the time, that was a lot of money. Okay? Yeah. And I'm 15. I'd been working on this farm in the sticks there. A farm, a family farm, they wanted me to take over. What's your family thinking when you come home with that check, though? I didn't tell anybody. Oh, wow. Why not? Um, because my father was a janitor at a YMCA, mm. and he was making about $3,600 a year. Oh, wow. That first check was for a job that paid more than he made in a whole year as a janitor. That's insane, dude. I can't even imagine. And I didn't want I didn't want any more family strife going on with, with him at the time. I, I wasn't living home at the time. Yeah. I was living with my grandmother at the time. Yeah, my grandma, I take it back. My grandmother and mother did know, but nobody else knew. Okay. Those are the only people I told. Because I knew my grandmother would be proud of me for getting my first job and the first check. Yeah. And I knew my mother would be happy that that... I'm continuing her footsteps by being the, the book thing. Yeah. The second job I got was a Disney book. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. That, that was, was the ask. second thing that I got as an advance check was I went to Western Publishing. Western Publishing had an office in New York City. The Golden Books, little Golden Books. Yeah, I'm familiar. So I, I got a, a project of four books, four coloring books that are Disney books. And this is when I was, at the time, 15 years old. Okay. That advance check, those four books paid 2400 bucks a piece. Come on, then. dude. Okay. So I came back from New York City for that, from that with the advance check. And I'm, I'm just like shaking. I mean, I, I drove back myself because I'm 15. I could drive then. Yeah. I'm driving back and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe how much money this is. And I got back and I'm just staring at this check thinking I can't believe this. And I, I would finish those jobs in two or three weeks. That's I said, this is, a, this is a gold mine. This is a fucking gold mine. 
And I rented my first studio before I was 17 years old. And I would walk in anywhere. Everyone thought I was in my mid-20s. No big beard, the way I looked and everything. I was just ripped kid. And that was just the beginning because you ended up doing The Little Mermaid, I did Aladdin. Everything. Yeah. yeah, I did everything. And I had a production studio. Now, I was a commercial artist at first. Yes. Where I did commercial art. That meant I did cereal boxes for Kellogg's and General Mills and companies like that. But at the time, there were a lot of independent companies. They were all bought up over the years to become these big mega companies. Like, you know, there's only like Unilever left and a few of these major corporations. Yeah. Back then, they all stood alone. And it's very easy to contact them and say, I'd like to do the packaging for your cookies or your generic cereals or whatever. And I put together a studio of artists to help me at the time because nothing was signed. That's something else. In commercial art, you don't sign your work generally. A kid's book, you might get credit on, but you didn't care because you made so much money you didn't you didn't care. Yeah. And I would have artists I would hire, and I paid them good money to sit there and help me with the books. Yeah. I did all the drawings for the books. I laid the books out. I got the approvals for the books. And I would have them color in the easy stuff, like the skies or the beach. If it was Mickey's Day at the Beach. Yeah. So there'd be a lot, there'd be 38 pages of sky, 38 pages of sand, 38 pages of whatever. And I would do the characters so they'd all be perfect. So I I had that studio and um man, I made a lot of money at the time. That was a real time make a lot of money. And I started getting distracted by other things at the time. Yeah. And one of them was my as I was going to high school. That's crazy that okay. this is all happening while high you're school. in high school. My my last year of high school, you know, and I always I never showed off my money. My grandmother always instilled in me on the farm and everything that I was in. Never show off what you got. Yeah. Okay, don't ever brag because you'll draw all the wrong people. You'll draw women that don't care about you. You'll draw guys that want to be your friend that aren't your friend. I think that's actually really good advice and, from your grandmother. Yeah, so she was great. She was a great person. And um, so I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew. I looked normal like myself. And I did a lot of girls I dated. I got in college. I was on the college radio having a great time. But I decided I had to go to college. I wanted to go to school. And initially, I wanted to be in, go to art school. We have some of the greatest art schools in this area. Pair Art School, Rodin School of Design. Yeah. My mother said, forget it. You know everything. You're already selling books professionally. You don't need to go to art school. I think that's probably good advice, too. That was great advice. She <laughs> said, you have to go to business school because having being an artist and having what you're doing, you need business education. That's even better advice. Yeah. So my degree <laughs> is in business administration. Yeah. That is my degree in marketing as a minor. That makes sense, dude. And here I am. I graduated from college. And at the time I graduated from college, I was making with my studio, because my studio could work while I was going to school. Yeah. I probably made, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in my last year of, of college. I believe that, 80s. dude. That's absolutely insane. Because I was a great artist and I was great young. Yeah. And I just saw this as such an opportunity. If somebody hired a staff to do it for you, which wasn't really done at the time. And um, I had all the education behind me and everything else. So I was all excited. Oh, I'm graduating from college. And my college professor, um, the one there that I revered quite a lot. Yeah. He came up to me at graduation. He said, I'm very proud of you. You're one of our best students here. But I have to say your education isn't done yet. Mm. Really, you think I should go into the master's program and everything already? He says, no, no, no. He said, you have to go out and get yourself a job selling brand new cars. It has to be Chevrolets or Fords. What? Like, I just, I'm already got all these kids That's books the worst I'm doing. advice. I'm making all this money going to New York City. Why, why do I do that? And he said, because they have the best training to be a salesman. 
I understand it now. That might have been actually very good he advice. He said, if you can sell somebody a new car, the biggest purchase of most people's lives, if you understand how people work face-to-face selling them a new car, with the training programs they do where Ford and Chevrolet bring out these huge teams and they will prep you and they will test you and they will work with you to get your, your acting gear selling. He said, it'll be the best education you ever had. I Honestly, can't recommend it enough. I sold brand new Chevrolets for six months at Valenti Chevrolet on Route 5 in Wallingford. Dude, honestly, you know, on a surface level, when you hear that, I'm like, Mike's so talented. Why is he going to go sell cars? That doesn't make sense. But there's something under it more that the experience of selling will be your ultimate and lesson that you else. can learn. And yes. So now I sold all those cars and I learned everything about selling. Wow. I really, I'm, I was a great car salesman. I learned everything. It's true. But you think of like the shady car salesman. You know, the, the, the um, crooked car salesman. The reason is, is they learn all the tactics to be a brilliant salesperson. Mm. They know the psychology of sales. They know what makes the buyers tick. They know if a guy comes in with his wife, sell to the wife. She's making the decision, not the guy. Wow. The wife always makes the decision. No matter how humble she is or quiet she is, he's going to look at her and say, what do you think, honey? You know, and she will be the one that says yes or no. It's true. It is true. And they said women always make the deals. If you have a choice to work with a woman, she'll always make the deal. And my whole life, the art directors at all the toy companies and all the children's book companies and everything else are women. Mm. Usually young, attractive women. Something I particularly enjoyed when I was in that, that um. <laughs> yeah, so um, one, of the reasons that's, one of the reasons that's important is, is there, was a lot of, there were a lot of things, too, early on. I had, I had one problem early on with my career. Okay. Is ethics. Mm. We're hitting in. Because if you're having this torrid affair with the senior art director of a major book company, and she's giving you all the plum projects, you know, should I be, should I be thinking about it? Now, I was going to New York City at the time when yeah. it was the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Think of Wolf. If you've seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street. Of course, dude. You know, there's there's money, there's drugs, there's girls, there's alcohol, there's everything. Yeah. That was all going on there. And I never drank. I don't smoke. I never did any drugs at all. That's me, dude. That was Same me. way, yeah. 100%. But I did have one weakness that got fit into that Wolf of Wall Street thing. You want to talk about it? Yeah, the women. <laughs> and, and what's funny is, is that I wasn't shy about it at the time either. So... <laughs> <laughs> So, oh no, and I'm not gonna blush him. I have no apologies for anything I've done in my life. I apologize for nothing that I've done in my life. I'm glad I said that. Yeah, so I, I have to say that, that, um, I sort of got over that ethics hurdle at the time because basically that's the way business worked. Wow. Okay. And in New York City and the rest of my life, I have seen what business was in the 70s, 1970s. Remember, I'm an old guy. I'm 60 years old. And this is me at 15, 16, 17 going to New York City with beautiful top shelf directors at all these companies that all thought I was this ripped 24-year-old farm kid with the blonde hair and the big beard and everything. And I was different. I really stood out in New York. I didn't look like anybody else there. Yeah. And nobody was working out at the time. You know, the 70s was before people worked out. Everyone was thin. Nobody worked out. And I was this just ripped kid. So, um, yeah, so I, I sort of, got over that ethics hurdle early on. And um, I thought, well, everyone's doing it. And now I wouldn't do it now. I wouldn't do it now. I wouldn't do it now. But at the, You wouldn't do it now, no, everybody. No, I wouldn't do it now. I need to make this clear. Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah. 
But my number is, no. <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, but I have to say that I was, I, um, I was young. Yeah, well, you know what? Speaking of numbers, <laughs> how many products have you invented? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say, well, it's a difference between how many I invented and how many I illustrated. Yeah. Like, I didn't invent Easter egg color kits. No, that's true. But right here is a whole stack. I just happen to have some on hand. Oh, wow. Is Look that, that. I, I illustrated and designed most of the Easter egg color kits that were sold in America, except for the Paz kits and some by a company called Fun World. That's insane, But I dude. worked with the company that had the Disney license for every single Disney license for over 25 years. So almost anything Disney, Christmas, Easter, or Halloween, I did that artwork for decades. Here is um, Beauty and the Beast. I did Aladdin. I did every movie book. I did all the, the what's called the Disney standard characters. Look, here's Hercules. But I did more than that. I did Sesame Street. Here, this should be a Sesame Street one right here. Come on, I did dude. everything. Yeah, I did everything. Um, Winnie the Pooh is here. Oh, here's Lion King. Everyone in America, if you're watching this, you grew up in America in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, you all had my artwork in your hands, either from cereal boxes or um, Chef Boyardee, the shape macaronis they had for the Disney characters. Dude, I recognize stuff. so many. There's so many things even in your studio yeah. that I recognize from my childhood. It's, it's something that people may not realize about you, dude, is that you invented their childhood. Flintstones. <laughs> Everything. Come on, dude. Yeah. Yeah, and... So what were some of your best-selling products that you ever you well, ever Crayola did? products probably were, the, were some of the best volume. But those Easter egg color kits were pretty good volume. Yeah. People often say, what was your best-selling thing? Probably the Crayola Color Wonder Set. Wow. So um, Crayola Color Wonder Set, I used to... So, oh, but I have to say, here I am. I'm the, the expert car salesman, and I think it shows in the how I'm talking right now. But wait, there's more. <laughs> if you listen a little bit longer, you're going to get two explanations for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I am the expert on selling things on QVC and Home Shopping Network, too. Well, I want to talk about that, too, because yeah. I know that the amount of volume of product that you sold is absolutely... We were talking about it earlier. Billions of dollars. I know. Say it Personally. One more, one more time. Say it one more time for the people, dude. Um, How many billions of dollars? Yeah, at you're least, saying it so at, casually, dude. At least, to, at least 6 to $12 billion worth of retail sales. From Come me. on, dude. That's insane. Through me, from me. That doesn't include all the, the cereal boxes I did the covers for, right? I'm talking about products I got royalties on or was connected to for some, some back-end money, okay? So, I'm, so I didn't get anything for cereal boxes or the, you know, the different kinds of pre-made raviolis. I didn't get it for like the um, like Kraft macaroni and cheese boxes of all the characters and stuff. Yeah. Or Farley fruit snacks or any of that stuff I did over the years. But, um, yeah, just the stuff that's for the products I actually created or went to companies and convinced them to make a version of, of their product that was me controlling it, me selling it, me going on QVC with it, is minimum $5 billion. And what's bad about the Internet is people will just invent stuff. And they're so used to people in government saying, I'm the expert at that. You know, I do billions of dollars. But that's one of the reasons why I don't want to say too much. I mean, I'll say all you want. Yeah. But I want to, I'm starting to publish everything. I have a Discord server that I set up. I'm going to start publishing my old contracts. I want people to see what I did and my royalty statements. And I'm not doing it to show off and say, look how much money I made. I'm doing it to show off what is available out there to do even to this day. There's all kinds of money. There's all kinds of opportunities. I see it as inspiration, dude. It's inspiration. And you see people like... Um, Gary Vee and stuff. And I'm not saying anything against him, but I'm saying is, is I want to be different. I want to be out there and promote 
like to like that type of material to people and that kind of hope to people. But I have the receipts. Yeah. I have the proof of it. It's just not me saying, trust me, I'm a car salesman. Yeah. You know, that we was, show them that, you know, someone else could go out and do this and it could be possible for them too. You know, that's yeah. how I felt when I was here the first time. I was overwhelmed in such a great way. And I was like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to focus on one thing in this lifetime. You can do many different things and not only do many things, but succeed at them in a great capacity. There, there is so much opportunity out there. Now, um, you're, you're, everyone watching this, I'm sure they're a big fan of Mike Squires here. He is <laughs> the most 80s human being on earth. I swear he, he is, has a mind meld with an 80s teenager in 1985. Isn't that right, dude? That's what you've been telling me, yeah, dude. That's all he says. <laughs> so I'm saying is that he is the perfect person to be sitting here right now. And, um, Back in the 80s, I was very successful. Yes. I mean, I am. I I was I was actually older than the teenagers in 1985 that all those movies are about. I was, I was. I remember an old guy here, but I'm saying that the opportunities right now are actually better than they were then. Yeah. There are so many opportunities and new avenues that people aren't getting. Is the internet has offered all these opportunities to people to be influencers and to be on Instagram and get famous doing things that you couldn't do in the past. And you don't need fame to make money. What you need is, you don't even need an idea to make money. Um, you just need to have confidence to mm. make money. And I would say that one of the things about being a good salesman is having ultimate confidence. And here's Mike, he's got all the confidence in the world. If, <laughs> if I could transport you back to 1985 in my DeLorean, great yeah. Scott, <laughs> and he has the confidence that would be a, a super winner. And I think that this is going to be this is going to be a great interview. It's going to go on for days, I'm sure. <laughs> um, ever see the movie Joe Dirt? Where no, the whole, I haven't. Oh, my God. The whole movie is about an interview like this. That goes on for days. Where he keeps getting invited back because the story is so interesting. I feel like that's what this is going to be, dude. Yeah, it's going to be that, too. So no. sorry about but that. But you know what? Like, you bring up a great point. And the thing is, like, your career, like, started way before the Internet, dude. Like, yeah. It, like you were one of the first people on YouTube to get access to live streaming. Yes, I had live streaming. When when YouTube introduced live streaming, they had five beta testers for the system. And the reason I was chosen is because I'd been live streaming on the internet since before YouTube existed. I was on live stream. I don't even know if these sites even exist anymore. Live stream, Ustream. I was on Blog TV, which was my, was my preference at the time because it had such good controls. Yeah. It was such a great system. And I was a very expert live streamer. And the people at YouTube knew all about that. And it was right at the time Twitter was born. I'm old. Now Twitter's like 20-something years old. And um, so I was given the opportunity to be one of the first live streamers. And one of the first things I did when I got, they put that live stream, and he's going to sit there, he's going to do these great live streams, and people are going to get all excited about live streaming. I took my damn laptop down to New York City, and I broadcast Occupy Wall Street. I remember Occupy Wall Street? I do remember Occupy now, Wall Street. for people out there that don't know what that is, in 2008, there was a big financial meltdown. And the meltdown was caused by subprime mortgages being given out. Mm. There were these banks in the whole Wolf of Wall Street era, till, they forgot Wolf of Wall Street sort of ended around the 1990s. They kept that, they pushed that right up until the early 2000s. And they were giving mortgages to people that really couldn't afford them. And what happened is, as soon as a market turndown happened, everything collapsed. And then there were all these protests in New York City called Occupy Wall Street. I took my laptop down to Occupy Wall Street when I heard, I, I, I was listening to NPR radio, and this guy says, yeah, you know, 
a little slow getting in. There was like some protest in downtown, a bunch of hippies banging on drums, yelling about Wall Street. Okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to New York City with my laptop, and I'm going to broadcast Occupy Wall Street, which they called it. And I cr- and my live streams were getting 60, 70, 80,000 people. Back then, that's just an That unknown. was insane numbers yeah, online. Yeah, doesn't even exist. Those were like Animal Planet <laughs> numbers. Those were like Lifetime channels. You know, yeah. These and I went down there with my laptop streaming with a wireless card, and I was reaching millions of people overall because my stuff was being shared all over the world. And I created... Incidentally, Occupy movements all across the whole world. Occupy Paris, Occupy Rome, Occupy Germany, Occupy Moscow. Everywhere there were Occupy ones. I wasn't promoting Occupy Wall Street. I was there just reporting it because these guys, I actually made a shirt I was wearing that has Mr. Monopoly on a cross that says Wall Street. I'm familiar. And I was trying to tell people that this is not Wall Street people that caused this to happen. This is not stockbrokers or hedge fund managers. It's subprime mortgages that caused this big financial meltdown that everyone's here. You're, you're sort of protesting the wrong thing. And they wouldn't get it. It was very similar to those guys that go up to different rallies now and they'll say some, so, so what do you think of this? What are, what, why are you out here supporting your candidate? Well, he does a lot for me. Well, what has he do, done for you? Well, he talks a lot about what he does for me. Well, what does he say he does? Where they, they come across as kind of stupid, you know? Yeah. And I was realizing that if I actually interviewed people there, it made them look kind of stupid. And I stopped doing that, and I just interviewed people why they were there. Because I, one thing in my life is I have gone out of my way never to make anyone look stupid in any way. Because if people are, I don't want them to be hurt because of it. And the internet is an awful place. You're a lot nicer than a lot of other people for that, dude. Because a lot of people would, would seize upon that early on. And um, I would say that's probably one of the things in my life that I feel good about having done. Yeah. That I don't regret. Is that... Um, you, you've seen I have all those um, Creative Commons pictures online. Yeah, I was. I wanted to talk about yeah, that. Tens like, of thousands of pictures. Yeah, like that. You're the most backlinked person. Yeah, I'm the most backlinked person on that stupid ever. Flickr account. Yeah. Can you explain what that means to people? Yeah, on the internet, you you get search engine favoritism by getting backlinks. That means how many people link back to you on something. So if you put up a YouTube video that's very viral, you get a lot of backlinks. Google will say, "Ah, oh, that's a hot video." So if someone's searching that word, we will put that as a number one search result. So that was another thing that led to my fame is all the backlinks I had for not only my YouTube videos that all went viral, but yeah. also my Creative Commons pictures. And um, the Creative Commons pictures in the course of making those, for everyone that's not aware, I'm Mike Mozart on Flickr. Is my, that's MG Dude, I was Flickr. going through that Flickr the mm-hmm. other day, and yeah. it is endless. My Flickr <laughs> is mostly pictures of laundry detergent on a shelf or a pothole in the pavement. They were things that people could use in writing blogs or writing articles or people at the New York Times would be able to use. So I photographed every commercial product and that this was the time when they didn't want you taking pictures in stores. These were all spy pictures because, oh my God, they would throw you out. They caught you with a camera in a store. Yeah. But I took a picture of almost every commercial product that was introduced for almost 25 years. But I also took pictures of displays. I took pictures of cars and parking lots, cars with body damage on them. And I was looking for things I knew people could do an article on or use in advertising or write a blog about. That's why there's so many pictures of flat tires and yeah. things. Potholes. I have a lot of pictures of potholes are used all the time. In the course of doing that, now I'm walking around in a store with a digital camera, and even early digital cameras had a video function. And I have to say, I did film quite a lot happening in stores where there would be these cat fights, say, between two women. Yeah. Okay. Or an employee would, or say, some combative customer would attack an employee, 
or those Karen videos you see now about people going off on someone. Yeah. I have probably recorded, in, always in a store, always with a, a camera so I could record anything. I have at least 600 different similar videos. That's insane, Because I was, I was one of the only people in the 1990s, 2000, early 2000s, before the internet was really anything, to, to what inspired have, you to do that, though? Um, what to, to Creative Commons pictures? Well, yeah, to start upload. Like, no, most people wouldn't think to upload that many photos. Like, what <laughs> inspired you to do that? The internet started developing. The, remember, the internet is kind of still young. 1996, 97 was when the internet started taking off a little bit because we didn't have internet browsers. Yeah. You know, everyone that you're watching this is you didn't have like a nice browser window to open, you know, an Explorer or Safari or something. You know, it was DOS, it was it was CompuServe, it was AOL that was a cloistered site they had to dial up into for $3 a minute to look at. Yeah. But when browsers happened for Netscape, was it's gone now, but Internet Explorer, which I think is gone now too, now it's Chrome, now it's Safari, whatever. But when that happened, um, when Google became popular, they introduced blogger blogs. Mm. And one of the problems early on is they needed pictures to illustrate their stories. And I had taken pictures for a decade, tens of thousands of digital pictures on my hard drive. I'll upload them under Creative Commons. Then these people will be able to write about anything. I took pictures of every toy there was in a store because I was a toy designer and a product designer. So I wanted to have an archive. If somebody called me and said, hey, you know, this is, we are the, the um, say, um, <laughs> it's now I'm trying to think of a really good example. But let's say a fruit snack company. Okay. Like, and like Farley's Fruit Snacks. Okay, we just got the license for SpongeBob. What should we do, right? And I would send pictures. Okay, these are the products that are out there. They're your competitors. This is the type of look they're doing. This is what I will do that I think would work really well. Oh, wow. So initially, they were an archive for me to help me with my business. But then I realized I was sitting on the biggest archive in history of everything. And I started uploading them for free so people in the emerging market of blogs, which aren't anything now. Now it's all just Instagram posts. Yeah. But blogs were a big thing at one time. Um, and they they became quite big. Um, I can has cheeseburger. Do you know what that was? I do. It's like, it's a, is that a, like, is that an original YouTube video or something? Like, no, I, it isn't. I can has cheeseburger. It's was like hitting a, like a nostalgic memory. You're like unlocking a memory and I'm not quite sure what it is. No, it is. It is. It was a WordPress blog where you basically turn your blog into a website. like a, I do. A, like I do a, remember this a little bit. So your blog could develop into a website, which could develop you into internet fame and success and other things. Mm. And um, so, but these people needed Creative Commons pictures because it was expensive to buy stock photos. And the, all the stock photo companies and anyone out there was looking for anyone doing copyright infringement. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this right now. I'll upload a couple hundred thousand pictures and make them public. Yeah. I had more public pictures in the beginning, too. So these photos end up getting, like, used in, like, news channels and what type of stuff? Um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Come on, dude. Um, the, the evening news on your local affiliates. And one of my scripted of pictures was used a lot just recently is, um, you know how asbestos was found in baby powder? I did. I did see yeah. that, actually. And that it was causing cancer in women, Johnson & Johnson, baby mm. powder. But when that became new news... I had taken pictures of Johnson baby powder on shelves for 20 years, and I had pictures of every configuration they ever made. And my pictures weren't normal pictures because another thing I did when I was in high school at 15, going to New York City doing kids' books, you know, going to high school, I got a job at an ad agency. That's crazy, dude. So I worked at an ad agency in Meriden, Connecticut called Fusion Group 2 that did banks and mostly consumer product companies because I wanted to learn how to do 
product design and I wanted to learn how to do graphic design. So it was part of my college education. So I would, I would go to school during the day. I would go to this job that was two or three hours a day after college. Then I would go to my art studio and work from like six o'clock at night until midnight, working on all the artwork there. I'm curious specifically about like, what was your experience with Disney? I know you started with those four books, but like, how did that relationship continue to grow? Well, that grew in ways I didn't expect is, um, I started doing a lot of hardcover products. Hardcover, when I say hardcover products, I mean books or products. I cannot tell you, when you're at a big company that does books and games and puzzles and toys and all these ancillary things, records, it's part of the products. Like, what products are you doing here right now? Oh, I'm doing six books. I'm doing record jackets because there were vinyl records at one time. Yeah. And all these things, which are back again. And um, so I'll have to explain the terminology as I go along. But I started doing a lot of Disney work. And when you do a lot of Disney work and you're an artist, you have to work with Disney themselves because you would do the sketches and you would do what you would think would be your final drawings. They would send these final drawings off to Disney. And Disney licensing would have Disney artists look at them and approve each one. They'd put a tissue overlay on and make little changes here and there. A lot of the changes were, I think they were just doing it so they could verify they had a job there. To Okay, this ear should be a little more pointed. It would have been fine. It was a pencil sketch. You know, I did what I could. And, um, but what happened is I started having to go out to Disney. I started needing to physically go there to Disney licensing. Because if you're doing, this is something important too that people don't realize. If a movie like Aladdin is coming out in theaters, right? When that movie breaks opening night, every toy has to be manufactured, sitting on the shelf, ready to sell the day that movie comes out. The toys and books and puzzles and everything else usually come out a few weeks early on store shelves. So everything's all merchandised in. Now the movie's there. Now every kid's going to want their Aladdin toy or Princess Jasmine doll or, or a little remote control rug with Aladdin on it. They want those things hot and ready to go. But in order to do that, you need your designers and book illustrators out at Disney to see the production as it's happening. You have to see like the storyboard designs. You have to see the um, early animation tests. You have to see the rough cuts of the movie. How are you going to do a book? How are you going to do a product that requires those elements? No, that makes a lot of sense. Was there was there a particular campaign that like stood out to you during that entire? I was a vocal person when I would go to these meetings. And one of the ones I was very vocal on was Aladdin. Aladdin. Yeah, Aladdin. Yeah, that what it don't say we don't say that around Disney. Well, okay. We'll it was it an out. abomination. How about that? That's more sophisticated than calling it a dumpster <laughs> fire. Whatever, whatever you're Yeah. What happened with what happened with Aladdin is I wanted to see Aladdin. And Aladdin follows the same pattern, which I had a lot of I was very vocal critic of Disney. The Disney people are the greatest artists on earth. Their studio is run like a top. You know, it it really wasn't back in the seventies, because I did work for them in the seventies, and that was a dumpster fire. But they straightened it out. The, the big breaking thing for Disney was when The Little Mermaid came out. Mm. That was their first great movie, I consider, of modern age. And you worked on, like, some of the products alongside? Yeah, I did a lot of products for Little Mermaid. I have, I have some of the Easter egg color kits and stuff. Wow. But I did children's books. Mike, walk around and get the pillow book, the, the Little Mermaid pillow book I did. So it's an unusual book. That's why I keep it out. Yeah. I did an unusual book for Spring's Performance, the people that made... Um, 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 pillowcases and bedsheets. Because so I used to do pillowcases and bedsheets. Yeah. Like if you had like Disney bedding, 
I did artwork for Disney bedding. That's crazy. And these you are know, things so you that you wouldn't even. Under, yeah. You slept under my uh, my artwork. You ate breakfast out of boxes decorated with my artwork. Oh, wow. Your breakfast cereal. That's crazy. Yeah, so I did a series of these books for spring performance. Say, and this is a, a big part of what my career has been. Wow. And this is the, what I could. When I tell you about this, this is worthy of a two-hour segment yeah. about what this meant or this type of product meant to the industry. As I noticed, a lot of people had licenses to do products. So here, we've got a company here that has the license to do bedding. What if we can do some other things that aren't quite bedding? Mm. Okay, what if you could make a book that could be sold in the bedding department with the license they had? I already did kids' books. This was an unusual hybrid and we talked Disney, when I say we, I worked with a lot of companies doing the same thing. Is this a book or a pillow, if it's called a pillow story? So this is actually a little pillow, right? Kids can put their head on. It's a little nap time pillow, and it has little characters inside that detach that you can actually play with the little book here. Wow. Okay. This is all my artwork and design, my concept here. Okay, I did a lot of these types of things. And I... I would be the instigator of all these bizarre things saying, you know, you're already selling a Walmart buy. You're already in there in Bed Bath and & Beyond and Kmart was a big retailer. As much as it, most people watching this link, Kmart is this big has-been that died that they barely know. At one time, Kmart was one of the biggest retailers in the country by That's far. insane, dude. And I made a lot of money d developing, creating products that were sold just at, at Kmart and Sears. Sears was huge. Jace Penney's was huge. And I used to do a lot of this kind of stuff for those those stores. From what year to what year were you designing Disney products? Um, probably the first thing I did was 1977. Okay, so that's like right after, like 70, yeah, yeah. 70, 1975, 76, maybe that early. I gotta think a second. The first thing I did when I was 15, so it had been 1977. So 1977 was my first Disney products. Those were coloring books, and I and I advanced quickly. Now, in the course of doing all these products, and we've got to sort of try to keep on the same, I'm very easy to sort of segue away. Yeah, from no, other I want to keep on the Disney yeah. for a little bit too, because I'm seeing, and, like, even just looking around your studio, I yeah. see a giant Sully right here. There's stuff everywhere. Yeah, the pig from Toy Story, too. And, and these stories all involve other stories. Yeah. That's the one thing about my life is I've started by saying, you know, the old saying, when one door opens, one door closes, one door, another door opens. But my whole life has been one door opens and another one opens and another one opens, but all the other doors stay open. Yeah. And I have worked through a lot of doors going backwards all the time. And a lot of the things like I did with Disney, Dis being so tight with Disney early on and being, remember you asked me whether anything's, see, this this got us off because of Aladdin. Yeah. We're talking about Aladdin here. Is that when I, I at Disney was, I would, there's a great company. Okay, it, was, it wasn't that good in the 70s. It really turned around in the 80s, later 80s, when they started coming out with like Oliver and Company and stuff like that. It, it started showing signs of resuscitation. Yeah. You know, and, but when The Little Mermaid came out, I remember the first time I saw the rough cut of Little Mermaid because one of the book, big book publishers I was working with was doing it, is I went to see it and I am the most, a most outspoken person against anything. Yeah. I will find any flaw that I see in anything. And I remember I used to go to Disney and I was the, I'm sorry, this is the language. I was the asshole. 
Disney is Emperor's New Clothes. <laughs> Everyone there is a fan of Disney. You're not working for Disney unless you're a fan of Disney. No, that makes sense. So you hire fans, and you're there in front of all these old art gods that animated Dumbo and Peter Pan and everything. You're like, heaven! And they come across, hey, what do you think of this? Oh, my God, it's beautiful! And I would go in and say, holy shit, that sucks. I would say that right in their meetings. And here are senior, they react? senior directors, art directors, everyone else. And they'd all be like, oh. and I'll say, this is why. And I will go through the explanation of why it's bad and why it won't work. Okay. And that is why I got in tight, I think, at that time with Disney, is they were having me come there because I would be, give this opinion that wasn't censored. Yeah. I learned not to do it in front of the animators and the directors and everything, but I would see it and I would go quietly sit with some other people in licensing or marketing and say, this sucks. And the thing it. is, I think that honesty has a lot of value, especially when the quality of your work is as good as yours is. And I affected, I think I affected a lot of Disney productions at that time. Just Aladdin was one that really needed, had problems. Aladdin really had problems early on. And I don't know how much of the people are still alive there remember it. But um, when it first started, Aladdin was a lot younger. Mm. The character Aladdin looked 12. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, and he was apparently supposed to be about 12. They didn't have an age. Well, he's sort of an ambiguous age. I said he looks 12. He may be 14 at the most. Well, Princess Jasmine's 15. And every, excuse me, every goddamn Disney movie, they're all 15 years old, and they have to marry before their 16th birthday. Well, And I remember the first time I went up to Disney Studios, and I'm hearing this, this shit about this stuff. I'm sitting there listening to this, and I said, so she has to marry. So Jasmine has to marry a prince before her 16th birthday. Yeah. You actually have this in the movie. Is this Alabama here? Okay. <laughs> no disrespect to my Alabama yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> no respect to Alabamians out there. But Alabama in the 1970s wasn't exactly, you know, you've yeah. come a long way and I love you all down there. Trust me. Well, my question is, when did you start getting, like, when did Pixar start becoming a thing? Well, Pixar wasn't even part of Disney. At that time, yeah. But, like, when did that get introduced? Because they, I know that you were they, down. Disney, I was I was there when this whole Pixar thing started getting swept in. I had gone to see Pixar before they even did a feature film. And I had met one of the early people that was hired there to be a story person, Joe Ramped. That was somebody I had a relationship with I sort of knew. Because I saw Pixar as a major opportunity. And I found out about Pixar when I was a 20-year-old. When I was young... I was doing work at WTXX in Waterbury. They had gotten in something called a SciTech machine. And that was the thing that makes those flyovers and the, you know, those, um, what do they call those things that go across the bottom of the screen? Chirons. Yeah. Yeah, Chirons. See, those weren't in the 80s, so you wouldn't know they yeah. <laughs> So um, I, um, I, I saw this as like Star Wars. Holy crap. When I was... Guys, in the early 1970s, if you saw a weather forecast on TV, he'd have the board here, and if it was sunny or cloudy, it was like felt. It was like felt little things. They would stick on a board like a teacher would have in school on a bulletin board. And it was so crappy. And then all of a sudden, we had graphics. And Channel 20 in Waterbury, Connecticut, was one of the very first stations that had graphics. And that blew me away when I was a kid. Well, yeah. Well, you, you just mentioned Joe. I know that Joe told you a story about... Can we talk about the Toy Story story? We'll talk about it a little bit. Whatever We're touching on with. things for this yeah, one, yeah, right? Yeah, because oh. I did give an interview, two interviews at the time that I went public with that, is my whole life, I had a, a bit of a relationship with one person there, Joe Rampton. 
like one of the most brilliant people, was really nice. And he was one of the people I met very early on at Pixar. And the Pixar company was part of the Apple company. It was on the Apple business development campus there. And it wasn't the biggest thing. But what was cool is if you, on the opening of Monsters, Inc., there's a thing that says Hidden City Cafe. That was a real place that you could walk to from that building. And that's where the artists all had lunch and drew pictures. Lots of fun little Easter egg, dude. Yeah, I know. It's so cool that they put that in there. When Monsters, Inc. came out, I was so thrilled to see that. So, um, yeah, so I sort of had a little relationship with him. And he had been, he had been, um, I guess he worked on Brave Little Toaster. He told me about a bunch of the stuff he did. Oh, wow. And you know what? We even know what that is. I do because you know what? Brave Little Toaster was in a game called Pajama Sam back in the day. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I know Brave Little Toaster via Pajama Sam. That's a great movie. My kids loved it. (laughs) And um, I have boys, all boys. So um, when this all happened is um, I was early on, I told him I want to work here at Pixar. Now, it was still part of Apple's campus there. And they just started working on some feature film type production. Disney didn't own them yet. But Buena Vista Distributing, which is part of Disney, was going to distribute the films, right, at the time. It was Pixar. Yeah. But it wasn't Disney Pixar. Disney hadn't bought them out yet. They were still part of Apple. And I remember I didn't have anything to do with any of the business things going on. And I didn't follow their different business transactions between Disney buying Pixar out. But I was there watching the move because I happened to show up there when they were doing this massive move to the new their new Disney headquarters, which was kind of exciting to be there. And Joe Ramped, who was the nicest guy, he told me when I came out, he'd spend the day with me, and he couldn't. It was chaos. I couldn't be in this. I couldn't be there for the move. But he said, you know what? Let's go to the Hidden City Cafe. We'll hang out there, and we'll eat lunch together. So we'll have a good time. So we went to Hidden City Cafe, and nice lunch. And I brought along a two-DVD set, Toy Story 1 and 2. It came out as a two, two-part set. I pulled out, I said, I want you to autograph this for me. Right? And I said... And he's looking at it, and we're eating. You know, you're not going to pull it out while you're eating french fries and stuff. So, um, but I said, Toy Story 2 is my favorite animated film of all time. And I said, if it wasn't for all the inconsistencies, it would probably be the best movie of all time. He leaned over and said, that movie was perfect. (laughs) And he was, and he never, I never thought he would have any of that kind of energy in him because he didn't seem to have a lot of energy unless he was acting. If he would act a voice out, he would have all this energy. Mostly he was like, this is a nice guy. Yeah. And um, he was the voice of Wheezy too. Yeah, Wheezy. And he did the voice of the Peterbilt tractor and cars. And he, and um, he, I don't believe he saw cars come out in theaters. He, he, he died young. He died in a tragic car accident. And, um, but, but he leaned forward, he said, perfect. And I said, okay, here's the big question. Andy's dad, okay? There is no dad here in Toy Story 1. They got a baby in a crib that's maybe 12, 13 months old that doesn't talk yet. So it's just a toddler, right? And it's his birthday. It opens with his birthday party. And dad isn't there. There's no pictures of dad in the house. And this kid is happy. There is no way that that dad is not going to be there. If he's out on a business trip and not there, he would have shown up in Toy Story 2 and he didn't. There'd still be pictures on the wall because there were plenty of pictures around the house, but there's no pictures of dad. And I said, so he's either dead, he's in prison, or they're divorced and he took off on the family, maybe with the secretary. What happened to him? Where'd he go? What'd he say? He said he died just before Toy Story 1 opened. Oh, wow. You, ki- he, you killed off his dad before Toy Story 1 opened? 
Hell, Disney does it all the time. They 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 off Cinderella's father in the first five minutes. They open with her on his deathbed. I mean, true. You think of Bambi. You yeah, think yeah, of everything else. It's, yeah, Nemo, Nemo's mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it says that's the way it works. So, yeah, but there wasn't wasn't the happy go lucky thing that it happened here, unless he was like beating the family or something. No, he said it's a long story. And he, I said, I want to hear it. Tell me, tell me what happened. Yeah. And he, for the next probably two hours, only supposed to go there for an hour, for two hours or so, he sat there and he told me everything I asked him about what happened with this movie and what happened before Toy Story 1. And basically his father had polio when he was young. His father had polio in the late 1950s. His father was the same age as Al from Al's Toy Barn. And remember, the um, Toy Story is the 1990s. So... For his father to be old enough to have Andy and everything, it was fine for 1957, 59, 60. Didn't have vaccines yet. And he said that um, he got polio. And at the time, you know what they did with toys that, that they had? They got burned. Everything would have been burned. And I said, okay, but how come Sheriff Woody's not burned then? Well, I got to tell you it from the beginning. He sat there and told me the whole story from the beginning of the whole life of, of what, Sheriff Woody was and how he was. And it, if I start talking right now, it'd be 25 minutes to get through this part. Yeah, tell, tell a little bit of it. Let's just see where we end up. What happened is, is that um, Toy Story, the, the whole story of Toy Story actually goes back to the 1950s. And he and, and he kept telling me the story, Joe Ramped, and I kept saying, well, it doesn't make sense because of this. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. And this is why. He had finished every crumb of this movie, everything leading up to Toy Story 1, he had fully put together in his head. He knew exactly what happened to the moment Toy Story went open. And I, I was so flabbergasted. I'll tell the story, but I would say at the end of his whole description, I was so flabbergasted. I said, you mean you had that all figured out? Why did you, why did you go through all the trouble of doing everything before Toy Story went open? And he looked at me and he says, well, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. He said it very clearly like that. Oh, I wow. got goosebumps, dude. Yeah, well, there's a reason for this is that I don't believe that he saw, he did not see the Disney Pixar movie Cars. I don't believe that he saw actual, the finished release of it in theaters. And I went to see it and I know he worked on it and I knew he was the voice of Peterbilt because he joked and when I when I saw him, we're working on this, we're doing pre-production on this, we're working on this Cars thing. And he used to do these voices as as placeholders. He didn't intend for his boys to be there, but in production, they liked the voice so much, they left it there. And I think he was Roz from Monsters, Inc. That's incredible, yeah. dude. You know, it was a placeholder, Wazowski. but they left it. Mike Wazowski, <laughs> you didn't turn in your paperwork. Incredible, dude. Yeah, so um, um, yeah. So this is, I just have to say, I'm just getting over this part. So I went to see um, Cars when it came up. The day opening day, they had like the sneak preview night, and I went there. And I thought, okay, I don't think there'll be anything in there that's going to make me teary-eyed or upset or anything. I'll watch this movie through. And it was a nice movie, and it starred, one of the stars was Bonnie Hunt, and I appeared on her show twice, her, her NBC show. She was, she played Sally, Light McQueen's love interest. Yeah. So um, I'm watching the movie, and I'm thinking, wow, this is something. And there's a part where it's night, and Mater and Light McQueen go off at night to go cow tipping, and um, where there's tractors, they tip over tractors. So at the end of that, they're coming back, and he and um, Mater says, "says How come you don't have any rearview mirrors?" 
And he says, I'm a race car. I don't need rear mirrors. I don't need to see where I've been. I need to see where I'm going. And he said, watch this. And, and Mater did backwards driving through the woods. He put all these trees and everything. Yeehaw, yeehaw. He came out to Lightning McQueen and um, he said, see, you need mirrors to do that. He says, wow, that was amazing. So how'd you do it? And see, this is awful because it was so bad. Even sometimes some of these things really bother me to retell them. I know. He looks like McQueen and says, can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. Come on, dude. I mean, you know? I know that's. And and it was unfortunate because he didn't love longer. I mean, he, he was not alive. I did not see him again after that meeting we had. He, dude, you got me shedding it. a tear and I got goosebumps, I dude. Come on, dude. And I, I had to leave the theater. I actually got so upset. I left the theater. And went outside, and when the ushers come up, you okay? You okay? I says, yeah. I can't finish this movie. I couldn't finish it. I did not see the end of it at the beginning. I couldn't yeah. sit through it. I had to go back another night and sort of clear my head. I mean, something like that, like especially when you know that, like that's what he said to you. Very and, specific thing he said to yeah, me. Yeah, like that would have struck a, a chord yeah. with me too. And so. it, it, really, it really hit me hard. And, um, um, yeah, so... He told me that he told me the whole story. I will I will get back to the story. I just want to say some of the, just the general things surrounding me doing this is when I became popular on YouTube and famous on YouTube, I decided I would post some things associated with my Disney adventures. Yes, going there, and some of the things were very unsavory, but nothing bad, nothing to, would reflect bad on Disney. Yeah, but things that were just interesting history, and I had decided I was going to tell that story. I was going to tell the story Joe Ramp told to me about about Pixar and and what happened for Toy Story One because it wasn't online. If you go online and Google it, there are whole blogs. People say what happened, and I knew the whole story of what he explained to me anyway. Yeah. So I um, I made up all the sets. I made I made a big a big Andy's trunk, which I don't have here anymore. I sold it to one of my my people that I mentor. He wanted to own this thing so bad. That's it was awesome. a trunk that said Andy on it, like the little trunk and yeah. Yeah, so I had done that. I had made all the props, the toys, at Sheriff Woody toys. I did drawings of exactly what happened it, that he explained to me, like a storyboard of it. Yeah, I got all ready to put up a YouTube video about it, and this is in probably 2007, and one of the high times of my career. And I started filming. I said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I said, if I do this, people are going to think that I'm, I'm trying to get famous off this guy's death. It would definitely be viral, and I would feel really bad. You know, and I, I said, well, I'll post it without advertising. Yeah. You know, because if I had ad revenue at the time, I said, I can't even do that. So I put it all aside. I said, I can't. I just don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to. I understand completely. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't do it. I didn't do the video at the time. So um, in 2015, 2016, about that time, I guess, 2017, I don't remember the exact time, but I was doing a live show on Instagram because I, uh, I was doing live drawings and paintings right yeah. there. And the course of doing it, Somebody came and said, didn't you know what happened before Toy Story? Because all these people, and you're alive and you have a thousand people, sometimes grandma will say, oh, yeah, he's the guy that went out to Pixar and knew Joe Rimmed. Yeah. You know, why, don't you, why don't you get on there and ask him if he could tell you the story? Somebody came and I started telling the story of Toy Story, what really happened. And I start telling it, and usually my live, my live shows on Instagram at the time would get 600 or 700 people. And I'm telling the story, and all of a sudden I'm noticing it's like, like five thousand, eleven thousand, twenty-two thousand. I'm like, oh my god! Yeah, people are sharing this all over online. This guy's telling the story of what really happened before Toy Story One, which was. 
started telling the story, and I was asked by Super Carlin Brothers and another channel on YouTube, Big Yellow Taxi, to do an interview. And I figured, you know, if I do an interview about it with somebody, it wouldn't be on my channel. I wouldn't be capitalizing on it in any way, and I would feel better about doing it. And I thought the story had to be told because it had been a decade after I originally considered doing it. Yeah. And if I don't tell the story, it's going to be a lost story. And at this point, this movie's a classic movie that everybody loves. Yep, and it's an ultimate lost bit of media, knowing that information, because I felt that after he passed away, it probably didn't tell a lot of people what exactly happened, which was confirmed later. Because other people have said, we never heard this part of the story, but there are bits and pieces of it that do match different things that are going on in here, which, which which makes the reality there of what this was. So, um, yeah, so I told the story, I gave the interviews, and... My interviews went so viral that the next day on when you went to Google News, I was the number two item. Yeah. Not just something like like a war starts or something. And then yeah. number two, you know, um, um, YouTuber, you know, describes what happened before Toy Story 1 with a relationship with Joe Ramped. And then you ended up getting a tweet. Yeah, a tweet. Yeah, Andrew Stanton. He tweets. He was at the time the, the, the chief kahuna there at Pixar. He tweets out, he says, he says, um, fake news, nothing to see here. Everybody go home. And it's like, that's not what happened. But he deleted the tweet. Yeah, and the fact that he addressed it kind of turns my head. It's like yeah, the fact that he addressed it and the fact that he deleted the tweet afterwards, other people at companies started probably coming forward to him and saying, uh, yeah, you know, some of this stuff is real because we heard this at the time in production. Yeah. So so a lot of the things he was saying, but nobody had the whole the whole collection yeah. of what all those facts were, what he considered. And then you got a visit, didn't you? Yes. I don't want to talk about the visit. We don't need to talk about the visit at that's all. That's a whole other visit, but that's another thing. That's my vindication visit. Yeah, we, we don't need to talk about soon. the visit then. As soon as as soon as that that that's all settled, the whole world's going to know about that. That's why I'm even talking about it right now. Yeah. But that damn pandemic screwed up everything, including the production. Just, yeah, everything. So what happened is um, I gave this, I, I'm going to move this along. So what happened is um, Andy's dad died before Toy Story 1 opened. The real story of Toy Story starts in the 1950s, is when Andy's dad was a child living in the same house. Mm. That was his house right there. If you look at the house, when they show the toys playing on Andy's room floor, the house is kind of beat up. The furniture has like vacuum cleaner marks on it from being beat up. There's this old toy chest there that's a covered wagon. That must have been there a long time. There was um, the, the closet. Everything had wear. Something that had been there a long time because that was Andy's dad's bedroom in that house. Right? So this is how he said it to me. And he was quite a storyteller. you know. And I grew up with a, with a family um, history of listening to storytellers tell about ancient times and the ancestors and all that. And the American yeah. Indians talk about the long ago times and everything. And he had that magic, that storytelling magic. And Joe Ramped had another thing, too, that always fascinated me is he liked magic tricks. Mm. I used to send him magic tricks, like like real magic stuff that magicians used, if I'd find it around. And I actually had a little care package to send out to him at the last minute, which I never sent, and I still have it here. It does something else that sort of breaks my heart, and I didn't get oh, it out. Wow. But he loved magic tricks, and I remember him talking about magic tricks. And, and, I, and early on when he started describing this, I said to him, I said, you know, you like magic tricks so much, you know, and I got some more magic tricks. I just want to make sure I mentioned I'm going to send you out some stuff. And I said, what, what's your fascination with the magic tricks? 
He says, because when I when I work on something like Pixar, Toy Story, or anything else, is you're a magician. Mm. What do you mean by a magician? He said, a magician makes you... It, it, the magician's whole thing is sleight of hand. It tries to make you believe one thing while something else is going on. So a magician will say, I'll make this rabbit pop out of this hat. But you don't know that the rabbit is on the bottom of the hat or he quietly sneaks the rabbit into the hat and then pulls it out or something. Yeah. He said, you have to have the audience believe everything that's happening before their eyes. You have to instill in them the words and the feeling and the drama of what this is that's going to happen. And then when it happens, they believe it's 100% real, like you're a real magician. You really have supernatural powers and can make real things happen. And he said that that's why I like magic tricks is because my job as what he, what he does is to write a story and present it in a way where people believe it's real. They watch that movie and at no part of that movie can they believe that it's not real. It has to have that feel of actuality, the feel of realness, the feel of emotion, the feel of everything. Because if you fake it and it doesn't ring right, it ruins everything. Yeah. Well, Mike, you're kind of a magician too because, mm -hmm. I mean, everything that you've created in your lifetime, the amount of joy, like yeah. the joy that it's brought, families, yeah. kids and everything is probably like, what does that feeling feel like, you know, to oh. know that you've had this impact on the world? Yeah, I, I, I would. It's so funny you mentioned that too because Joe Ramp had a big impact on the world and I just wish his story was told more about who he was as a person besides my story for Toy Story. Yeah. Is that I never realized just what my impact was at first. And when, when my kids were young, my two sons were, were young, and we went into a grocery store, and it was Easter time. Now, I had done um, books of Peter Rabbit, and they were being sold as promotional Easter products. And I started doing the Disney Easter stuff. So I had the Mickey stuff. I think the, the Little Mermaid kit, no, the kids were older for than that. Might have been gummy bears and dark winged duck or whatever. So I did all these Easter kits. Go over to the Easter department. There's the Easter kits I did the artwork for, the baskets. There's the books I did. Right? I'm like, it's just, it never dawned on me until that moment. I'm in a grocery store at that time, 1989, maybe. I'm like half this whole Easter department of products. Then you go over to the kids' cereal department, and I'm like half the cereal box covers over there, all looking back at me, the stuff that was sitting on my drawing table is there looking back at me right now because those boxes need a lot of art for the backs. Remember, there were like puzzles and things on the backs. They changed them all the time. That was good money for artists to keep replacing those things. Yeah. I worked through agencies to do that work too. And it's like, wow, I saw that stuff. And then I'm on the covers of fruit snack boxes because fruit snacks started coming out at the time and fruit roll-ups. And I think just walking through a grocery store, how much of my stuff was everywhere? And this wasn't toy stores. I had all the toys and stuff I did. This is a grocery store. The grocery store. That's the first time it struck me like, holy crap. It's like every kid in America is going to have a piece of my artwork in their hands. Yeah. And I think for everybody who's like watching this, like there's just no way they haven't came across something of yours. I mean, you did blow molds, like yeah. even the, I know you did like a lot of sculpting for too. Anyone doesn't know blow molds are those big light up things that were on lawns before they had the inflatable ones. Dude, prior to yeah. this interview, my girlfriend asked me if, Mike Mozart made the ghost blow mold that's in our front yard, yep. and I walk into the studio and it's right over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So you're that's gonna have insane. to do a cutaway to that so they know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, maybe the one in my driveway too. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm just so it really dawned on me what an impact I was having on people, and it was I would think that moment too was a sort of a paradigm shift in my thinking 
I got to be a little bit more careful about what I'm doing out there, mm. product-wise. And and um, this that led back to another thing, and it's probably one of the the things that I I didn't take advantage of the time that I probably should have, and I really should have. I just I I was doing this kids show. Okay. Is that um, a lot of people watching this know who Alf is, or at least realize a character called Alf yes. existed, alien life form, popular '80s TV show, Mister '80s sitting right here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know and, Alf. <laughs> and um, I was with the I was with the guy at Channel Twenty that invented the puppet, and um, with the puppet that became Alf, the really design became Alf, and um, and and um, which most of the time though was was puppet after Paul Fusco left. He didn't do much of it. Then Don Wonderly did amazing job on TX Critter and other puppets at the time. But um, that gig there that I was doing at Channel 20, doing Kids Time Express, led to an offer for me. Like that puppet was so popular that he got that thing with ALF. He did the proposal for ALF and got ALF as a network television show and one of the top shows in the 1980s. The licensing bonanza all the ALF toys and ALF products and everything. You know, and here I am standing right next to the guy that did all that stuff. And I had my break there too, which would have, could have been my biggest break in history, is at that time, there was a character called Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, you were telling me about and you this. Could, you could, if you want, show a cut or show okay. yeah, of what he what was it looked like. like. It's hard to imagine the strength of what that guy was. Is when I was a little child, two, three, four years old, he was a very popular television host that did shows with, with these little puppets he has at Friends. And he was like a kind, nice guy. He was such a sweetheart. And Bob Keeshan was probably one of the, the greatest entertainers for children. Calm, peaceful, intelligent, wonderful person. And kids loved him, and he loved the kids. And um, But he was retiring. And I was invited to a taping of Captain Kangaroo in New York City. And I went to go see this this taping, not knowing why I was there. I, would, I just want to see Captain Kangaroo. I want to see Bob Keeshan. This is so cool. And I saw him, and they said, you know, what do you think? It's just great. And Bob says, says, would you consider being my son here on this show? And I and didn't. I wasn't anything I expected. What do you mean? It says, well, the girl said, we can put a couple. Let me put a jacket. He wears a wig. He had a wig on. But you don't need a wig. You got enough hair. They wanted to put on the Bob the Bob Keeshan outfit on me. The yeah, with the blonde and the wig. wig. I didn't need the wig because I had were plenty of hair. Yeah. I had plenty of hair at the time. And um, they said, we want you to do a test. Do like a test show like you've just seen. And Bob will talk to you. And he did. He he played along and I played along. And he said, hey, everyone, I you know, I have never introduced you to my son. This is my son, Mike. Right. My name, my name, first name is Wolf. Yeah. But I only, my entire art career, I only go by Michael Wolf. Never have I ever used anything for 35 years publicly other than Michael Wolf. And my real first name is Wolf. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like a good name for a kid's host of a TV show. Hey, Wolf. And there's, whole, there's a lot of other things, which will make it a whole other video series here for you about why to stop using Wolf. <laughs> so, um, so Mike says, this is Mike. This is Mike. He's my son. And um, I want to introduce you all. And, and we talked, and we had a great time on camera. And they're like, we have a new Captain Kangaroo. We want you to be the new Captain Kangaroo. And at that time, it moved to public television. It used to be on commercial television. It moved to public television. 
Yeah. You know, if to, you, you want to be Captain Kangaroo, you have to lead a pretty good life. And that would be a 24-hour-a-day job to be Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. You would have to be filming there every day, right, in New York City, which would, which I'd have to probably move to New York. If I went in, say, three days a week to film four episodes or whatever it was, it would be a big part of my life, a huge commitment. Yeah, that, that doesn't even be. include the fame outside of the that. The fame of that, yeah. And I was always... I was always afraid of something too. I may as well mention it here right now. I actually have something called werewolf syndrome where my whole face grows in hair. I wax it. That's why there's no hair on my cheeks and my nose right now. But I grow solid hair. Yeah. And there's plenty of pictures of me as a child, you know, with my hair growing on my face. And I just thought, I'm going to be on the front cover of the Weekly World News where they had the Bat Boy and everything. Wolf child becomes children's stars. Like, oh, geez. Oh, no, dude. They're going to brand yeah. me as a werewolf. This Wolfman character is actually Captain Kangaroo. It's like, uh, this isn't going to work. You know, I said, I, 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 it is the saddest thing I've done in my life to, re to reject this. But it's not good for me and it won't be good for you because I, and I explained the whole problem with my face and everything. No, 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 we could work with that. Make work it into the show. I'm like, oh, come on. You're not going to, you're not going to have a Wolfman on this show. And they said, this is kind of a cool thing though. If you let your face grow out, you know, we could just picture you on Sesame Street or something else as the wolf guy. Yeah. And I said, I would rather not walk around with that on my face my whole life. My whole life has been hiding that fact and keeping it clean because I didn't want to be a circus freak like um, another famous person named Jojo, the dog face boy. Yeah, that, and that's he has a similar or the same syndrome. Exact same, exact same genetic anomaly I have, which causes hair to grow out in your face. My wow. hair grew out exactly like Jojo, the dog face boy. Yeah. He was a Barnum Circus freak, a famous Barnum Circus freak. Well, Mike, I have a question. Yeah. At what point, because you were going by Michael Wolf. Yes. When do you become Mike Mozart? When I, see, this goes back to Maine. Well, what about Maine? Um, I'll, I'll just say just a little bit for anyone that's tantalized out there is I spent a lot of my time on a rural Maine farm that the family expected I was going to take over. It was a declining family farm. There wasn't much left of. And I was, it was a lot of work to run it with just my great uncle it was 85 years old. Me, my aunt was still doing what she could there. A couple farm hands, me and whatever occasional seasonal help we needed. And it was really a declining family farm. And another thing relates back to Captain Kangaroo is on this farm, it was supported by being a moonshine operation. Yeah, you did tell me a little and bit about I was, this. I was the kid there making all the moonshine, bottling in mason jars, just like in the movies, and driving the truck out and delivering moonshine. So it's like, can you imagine being Captain Kangaroo? Hi, kids, I'm Captain Kangaroo. Today we're going to learn about letters and numbers. You know, and it's like front page of the National Enquirer. Moonshiner criminal becomes, you know, Captain Kangaroo. That, I don't see you as that, dude. No, it's just that it was a different time. No, I know, I it know, was, dude. It was a necessity. It's something the farm had done since the Depression to, to get by and pay their bills, and pay the taxes on this farm thing. You know, and here I am thinking, oh, my God, they're going to put me all over the front page of the National Enquirer if I say this. Yeah. But the whole moon, thi moon thing is, moonshine thing is, I'm half American Indian. I'm half American Indian on one end. My mother's side of the family is American Indian. My father is Scandinavian, you know, Finnish, Danish, Scandinavian. And here I am in the middle. The product of these two isn't your family has a your father's. My dad's Norwegian, yeah. Norwegian, yeah. And um, so we're we're Viking stock. That's why the big beard. But also, um, I had we're these are two very superstitious sides of the family. 
those Norwegians aren't one that just came out of Denmark and moved there in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. These are families that, that migrated in 1690 or 1710. And these communities were isolated from the world, basically. And they had the old ways. They still believed in Thor and Odin and, and spring spring ceremonies and rites and sacrifices and things of animals to bring crops and all this. And here's the American Indians that were just as as superstitious as that. And here I am, this kid born with werewolf syndrome, where my, I'm covered in hair. My whole face is all hair. Most of it fell out, fortunately, after I was born. But there was still enough there that, obviously, if I let it grow out, I would have a beard bigger than most men could grow today. Your beard is pretty thick right now in, in the yeah. flesh, dude. <laughs> and it, does, it grows a lot bigger than this, and it grows fast. Well, Mike, one thing I do know just from us talking is that you were able to make money pretty early on and get comic books by working on the farm. There were a lot of topics you couldn't cover at the time. You couldn't just say to everybody, hey, I grew up on a rural farm. Let me tell you what I did. I ran their moonshine operation that supported them so they could pay their taxes and their bills. You know, it would, it would first that would say, well, that's a weird thing for Mike Mozart to come out and say. Yeah. And when I was a kid on this very rural farm in Maine, I was the one that made the deliveries of such things because they had a farm plate system. When I was 12, 13, 14 years old driving around town in this pickup truck. Didn't need a license or insurance. Was covered under the farm plate if you're a farm worker, which I was. And I drove that. I, I By the time I was 14, 15, I was driving over half the state of Maine delivering moonshine. Oh, wow, dude. We didn't call it moonshine. We didn't sell moonshine. Oh, we didn't, we didn't sell moonshine. What no, sell? no, no, oh, we no. Sold, we sold mosquito repellent. Mm. We sold paint stripper, varnish remover. We sold pickles where we put the pickles in the product. Wow. You know, we would put peaches in. It'd be preser peach preserves, you know. Yeah, but... I think this is just a part of like who you are, dude. Yeah, it's a you know part what of mean? what it is. And and um but another part of it that people don't know is they really intended me to take over this farm and build it back up again. And there were a lot of neighboring farms right around the area that I was working on too. Like any minute that I was available, they needed me to do something because these were all declining family farms in that area. Most of them are all gone now, now it's all housing developments. But back then it wasn't. These were farms that we're not modernizing fast enough to keep pace with the factory farming that was starting to happen where people had hundreds of acres for corn, you know, that were all tilled with automatic machinery to pick it and all that. You know, that didn't exist. There's still a lot of the old ways going on here. And a lot of the farmers did not focus on one crop and they would, they would have the family farm. You would have 40, 50, 60 cows, which was a lot for yeah. a small farm. We'd have a few pigs that feed the family. You know, we would have chickens. We had, you know, we had 150 laying hens. That doesn't make a lot of eggs. We, we made about 12 dozen eggs a day with the eggs that we would do. 12 dozen eggs, you go to a grocery store uh, and spend a dollar a dozen to get eggs. Yeah, considering the amount of people, like, that really isn't a lot. Yeah, it isn't really a lot. I mean, it was a small thing, but we sold a lot to the local restaurants, and I'd go every morning to the local restaurants and drop off their farm-fresh eggs late that night, you know, and first thing in the morning. Once I picked out from under the angry hens because they weren't pleased that you steal their eggs. That's all another thing people don't understand at the time. They, you know, how hens are kind of protective of their eggs once they lay them. They'll peck you. Yeah, they like no, I mean, you, that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, but they weren't fertilized eggs either. We didn't, we only had, um, we only, does the hen know that though? Probably not. No, they don't know. Yeah. And we didn't, and um, we only fertilized eggs or put the rooster in with the hens if we needed some more replacement stock for the eggs for the hens that were either layers, but we raised chickens for broilers or fryers. And those are ones where you raise for meat. Like you go to the grocery store and you get that little wrapped up chicken. Yeah. You know, ooh, you know, a fresh little Purdue chicken. Those were living animals at one time. 
and those chicken nuggets at McDonald's were living animals. And here I am on the internet. People say, oh, what was it like being on a farm? You know? Yeah. Because they see storybooks of the happy chickens and the happy cows and everything. And farms are a brutal place. Yeah. I mean, it's a really brutal thing. If you think about what you do, what you are, is that when you're young on a farm, you're a boy and you're five years old, now they want you to be involved directly in everything to do with the farm because you have to grow up and you can't, you cannot be sensitized or too sensitive to what you're doing because it's what life is. And this is a rural area. It didn't have TV or radio or almost anything going on. And um, we had chickens and we used to have to slaughter chickens. Yeah, I knew that was coming. And when I was a little boy, I had to cut the heads off the chickens myself. Which Five is years old, six years old. Very intense for a little kid, dude. It, but, you know, it wasn't intense at all. Because you were raised that way. I watched them do it first. Mm. I saw the adults doing it. I saw that we ate the chickens. So it was like part of life. Yeah, and you were using and, it to survive. Yeah, and and it's different on a farm. That atmosphere of me growing up is something I have done everything I could to hide. Because I didn't think, because people today are so desensitized to what they're eating or what they're doing. They don't think about what they're eating. They sing chicken nugget. And it's such an overprocessed product. It is so removed from what the chicken was. And those little chickens, those little whole chickens that you buy, you're still pretty close to. I mean, you can see it and you can feel what the animal was, but you weren't there watching it grow up or having it as a chick. Yeah. And that whole operation, even on a family farm, and our chickens were treated well. Our, our animals were treated with the most respect. I mean, no way did we ever look down upon them. I mean, if you think of how, you know, food is done today, like I, you and know. What I mean? You always hear farmers talk about respect for the land type thing. And I, I grew up with that, and it's odd because if you're actually on a farm, you actually have to go out and till the land. And we did harrowing, which is so funny because you tell people, what do you do on the farm? I did harrowing. Because that's what they called it. Harrowing in Maine was probably heroin. Like yeah. That. And it was just so funny to walk out on that field that was freshly harrowed or tilled or whatever whatever was being grown there. Because you would, you would till it or you would cultivate it, depending on what you were growing. Walk across this barefoot and just think, wow, the, everything that I eat comes right there. That dirt is what I eat. Because we use that corn to feed the cows and the pigs. That corn made the moonshine. We raised we raised some barley too, just for the moonshine operation. How much money were you making during the moonshine operation? I don't know. I was getting paid. I was getting paid for delivering it, basically okay. extra money. But I was also getting money from being working on the farm that sort of got included into it. And I think like having that experience at such an early age is, you know, most people don't have their first job until they're like a lot older. Yeah, when I was five years old on the farm, I was probably making a dollar a week. Wow. But a dollar a week was a lot of money in like 1972. No, it was earlier than that. It was like 1969. Is that that was a lot of money, a dollar. You know, you take that dollar and you could buy comic books for 10 cents a piece. Yeah. You know, you get a comic book for 10 cents or 15 cents if it was a Marvel one. Usually the Marvel ones cost a little more. I like Marvel. Yeah. I thought DC sucked. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. If you're a DC fan out there, DC sucks. DC was no, all I feel about, you. I'm, really, I'm with you 100% yeah, of the way DC was like one. this. You know, we're valiant. We're the good people. We are the spirit of America. You know, we saved the world. And it's like, Marvel characters were all, were all fucked up. I mean, they all yeah. had problems. They all had issues. They were, they were badasses. They were much more badass to have a Marvel character than a DC character. So, um, so 
I um, was getting this money early on, and um, it was like, I think that instilled something where kids don't have it anymore. It's like, is that they don't have a family farm. They're not working on a farm. They're not producing anything. They're not seeing the results of what they're doing at five, six, seven years old. You know, we're not, we're not used to that. And to, like, say if I, you know, you had to cut the heads off the chickens, but it was a lot more than that because you had to, you had to dip them in boiling water to get their feathers to release after you do that. And you had to, you know, gut them, you know, and all this stuff. That's very intense, dude. And it wasn't, but to me, it wasn't intense. I know, because it it's like how you grew of, up. If you're doing 50 chickens, you know, that's what you do. They grew pretty fast, so you had a lot of that. And um, probably the most brutal part of this whole family farm thing is, and it goes on to this day. So if anyone thinks I'm brutal, you, you'll all recognize this story, is that when chicks are born, because you had to replenish the stocks of the animals, and you would you would hatch 150 baby chicks, and they're cute as hell. These little beep, 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 bright yellow little chicks. But there was something you had to do. Um, you had to vent them. You had to check them to see if they're a boy or a girl one. Mm. Now, some of, the, some of the chickens were easier than others because some had feathers and the little wings. You could see when the first couple of feathers come up was a boy or a girl, but you're turned upside down and there was a little way you can check, okay, that's a boy or a girl. So you have to separate out the boys and the girls because the girls grew up to either lay eggs or be nice broilers or whatever. The boys were dangerous roosters when they grew up. The cockfights, they were dangerous, vicious, strong animals. I have an idea of where this is okay. going, dude. So I would separate these out, and I'd put the boy chicks in a bushel basket. Oh, they're all the cute little boy chicks in there. They look just the same. Pee, 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 pee. I can imagine. They walk over to the wood chipper and just oh. dump them in and chip them up. Oh, and no. everybody out there that has a dog has fed those baby chicks to their dog, because if you get any of those premium dog foods, the number one ingredient, our number one ingredient is pure chicken. Yeah, you look at it. It says ground chicken meal. Those are ground up baby chicks that come to these big family farms that are big a big eggling productions. Those are ground baby chicks. The feathers, the beaks, the the, the, the I feet, know, everything. Dude. I know, and I know that's the truth too. Look up like, online. I don't like to think about it though. So we fed them. We fed the baby chicks. Those the ch chick remnants we fed to the pigs because they we mixed it in their food and that was nutritious for them. Yeah. And there was no sympathy. There was no pain for having done it. It was something that you became insensitized to. It was to. just part of the process. Part of the process. It was. It wasn't anything. How do you feel like this whole experience on the farm like influenced and turned into, you know, your drive and everything that you're doing today? Like what, you know what I mean? What point do you go from, you know, living on this farm to I'm not doing this anymore and I'm going to live a life of an artist? Well, my mother had been an artist when I was a child. Yeah. And I was a great artist. When I was 12, 13, 14 years old with a lot of time on my hands, no internet, no texting, no no. Phone calls, calling a girlfriend because you because it was expensive to call on the phone. You call two towns over. It's like ten cents a minute. Then that was a lot of money. One thing that we haven't touched on yet that I'd love to talk about is just uh, like I want to talk a little bit about how how did you get these Peter Kyle paintings? You know, we're surrounded uh, by them the whole time. But like, well, what a story that is. That's it's what like, I'm how saying. Much of the real I, like, story do I tell? Okay, I'll, I'll I will tell you the, the the whole background of that story. Um. <laughs> and for people that don't know, Peter Kyle is Picasso's renowned assistant. Yeah, it was an assistant friend. They, they exhibited together. The amount that he assisted really isn't generally known to the general public, but it was a lot near the end of his life. And um, <laughs> But the, the whole Peter Kyle thing is, is an interesting story in and of itself, is that um, what, <laughs> what I discovered early on is that 
if you're a, an artist, if you're a guy and you're an artist, I discovered early on that it's catnip for women. I'm sorry to say it so bluntly. I don't want to sound misogynistic or anything, but it is the God's truth that I, as soon as when I was a kid, I'm an artist. Look, I do Disney books. You said something very interesting to me too, is that, you know, artists are the celebrities of celebrities. Yes, they're the celebrities of celebrities. And so not only does, is it very attractive to girlfriends and women and everything that think it's fascinating you're an artist, but celebrities, like real celebrities in movies, people with a lot of money and power love artists because artists to them are the celebrities. You are the celebrities celebrity. You are to a politician or somebody rich that runs a major $12 billion business. You are the celebrity. You are the one that they want to buy paintings from. They want to come here to the studio and chat with me and hang out with me and learn from me. And I, I more or less become their psychiatrist, their psychologist. I'm the person they confide in because all the people in their circle they work with and their company and their friends, they don't want to tell them, you know, I'm depressed or this isn't going right in my life or, you know, I feel so lost and my rudder broke years ago and I feel like I'm spinning in circles. I'd love to talk too a little bit about your paintings too and just like, the process and one thing that I know that's very unique about your style are it's it's the shavings, the metallic shavings, dude. They're just like so beautiful, and especially once they're resined. I know it might not be the same on camera, but like even just like looking at it from here. I use metal flakes. It's and a lot of people have tried to copy this look and appearance, and they have not been successful. And I haven't really revealed a lot of my secrets, except those are metal flakes. They're used in automotive industry. They're used on bass boats. They're used on Bowling balls, guitars, helmets, you know, for like motorcycle people. Um, drum sets, used to use a lot of them. And it's a special process to put them on those different things. If you have a surfboard that has metal flakes, or if you have a bass boat or a car, there are different processes involved to make them look sparkly and beautiful on the, the items. And um, I buy the best, rarest metal flakes. A lot of them have, they change colors. They're long ones, they're short ones, they're round ones, they're all kinds of crazy ones. Because early on, I discovered art resin is the, the substance that seems to bring out the beauty in them and the attractiveness in them and look really nice on paintings. And it sets me apart from all the other artists that are out there. Yeah. So there's some other intriguing thing. The reason I like Metal Flake so much is, is that the painting changes as you walk by it. Every angle you look at one of my paintings, it has a different appearance, a different feel. So something new to experience under different lighting. You know, under different under different situations, like you use interior lighting. If you have a candle, it always looks different, always looks beautiful, and it looks different to everybody that sees it. Where it's not just a painting that hangs on a wall that's just, just plain. Yeah, and I'm looking at the Peter Kyle one right behind your shoulder, dude. How like I well, you know, how did that come to be, dude? Well, as I was saying, I discovered when I was a teenager that girls like to be drawn in portraits. Yes. And um, and they like artists to do it. It's yeah. always it's always every girl's dream to be drawn by an artist. It yeah. really is to this day. And the reason I started doing Picasso is when I was a teenager, um, Picasso was known to be a womanizer. Mm. That he drew and painted women, and I didn't think he did the best job at it. Okay, but you know it worked for him, and he was known to be the biggest. Um, I'm trying to think of a good word because it would reflect on me. He got around. He got around. I got you. Okay. Understood. Picked up. Okay. Put down. Um, let's say he was a playa, <laughs> as they would say. And um, I discovered that it's kind of nice being the artist playa. 
and I would do a lot of girls, and they they all knew exactly who Picasso was. They knew exactly what the style was. They knew exactly who Picasso was, and he was famous for being the playa, and he featured girls that are now in museums. Mm. So not only you're getting drawn, but you're actually doing an artwork that's going to survive and be, be, be in a museum someday. You know, that's before Instagram. If a girl wanted to be famous, that was the way to be doing it, by a famous artist particularly. So when I was young, I started doing a lot of Picasso-type pictures, and I painted a lot of them when I was young. And as an adult, I was doing Picasso painting still for my own entertainment. And I would give them to girls for my own entertainment. And um, I um, was discovered, there was a, a dealer that dealt in Peter Kyle's paintings. And he contacted me and said, how would you like to embellish some paintings? Peter Kyle's getting old. He's not really painting anymore. He has a lot of beautiful unfinished paintings. You'd be perfect to collaborate. You countersign the paintings. And then you can you can have these new masterpieces yeah. that basically connect me with Picasso anyway. Yeah, and they're so, so beautiful on top of that, dude. Oh, they're magnificent. I, I have enjoyed making these, and it's nice to have them on hand. I've been selling them pretty regularly, and they're being featured right now, too, in Foxwoods Casino. That's crazy. That's the largest casino in North America. I'm very familiar, dude. Yeah, and they are featuring my artwork right now, and they'll be featuring it quite a lot. A matter of fact, another 12 or 15 paintings will be there this week. Oh, let's go, dude. Well, congratulations on yep, that. Yep, yep. I have a question for you, though. Why, why Richie Rich and Mr. Monopoly? When you're out in a rural area where there's no television, there's no radio, you don't want to sit around just reading books. You played a lot of cards. You played a lot of checkers. You played a lot of chess, things that were just something to fill the time. One of the things was Monopoly. They had their old Monopoly game there. Never really enjoyed playing Monopoly. It was sort of like I kind of liked the whole Monopoly gig. And uh, when I started doing professional artwork, I started seeking out Mr. Monopoly as projects because I liked the Monopoly guy. And I started doing collectibles and I just posted some pictures on my YouTube channel of some of my original artwork for a collectible line of Mr. Monopoly figures I did years ago. But I did a lot of work for Hasbro's associates and the, and the specialty game department that they were doing. And I have done Mr. Monopoly professionally for them and for the Danbury Mint who had the license for Mr. Monopoly. And I did do some of the work for the Monopoly's promotion from McDonald's. That's insane, That turned out dude. to be a scam. Oh, no. Yeah, early on. Re watch the documentary on YouTube. I definitely will. I don't hate you, McDonald's, really. Would you be down to talk about uh, any ghost painting that you may have done? Yes, I will be happy to. And I, was have to, I, will, I have to say something first before you get into this. A big part of my early career, I'm, I'm this young, fresh-raised kid going to New York City, and I was hooking up with all the senior art directors all these publishers, and we're all gorgeous women. It's a whole story. <laughs> and um, they, um, there was a problem with publishing at the time. Is that a lot of the artists who in kids' books and that were contracted were elderly people. They were old, retired Disney artists or Hanna-Barbera artists. Or they were from the past, like magazine illustrators. And as they went along, they'd take projects, but they couldn't finish them. A lot of them, as they get older, would get Parkinson's or their eyesight would go and the projects weren't being finished. Mm. And I was the fixer. I was, I was chosen. You're in Connecticut. Most of them live in Connecticut. What if we just pay you to go there and help the guy finish the book? We'll give you book credit if you want the book credit. I didn't want credit on anything. I just wanted the money. It was yeah. pretty bad. I was the wolf, the wolf of Wall Street <laughs> right there. And I would go to these houses, and I would say, okay, what's, what's the problem? I'm the fixer. I'm Mr. Wolf, right? So I'd go in there, and I, I, that, I went by Mr. Wolf, guys. You know, I was the wolf of New York City then. And I would go and sit down, and they would teach me the techniques that they had started the book with, and I'd have to finish the book on their technique. 
But I learned every book technique there was. I learned how to do opaque gouache, different kinds of watercolor techniques. I did oil painting. I did everything. Yeah. I learned every type of illustration style and how they did them. And you became an incredible, like you were already an incredible artist, but like yeah. that just added to your skill. Yeah, now I learned how to basically paint everything. And then I had to do 40 paintings of it right in a row because it was a book. And it's like, wow, I, I can be, became known as the fixer. And I used to, the joke about this is now is, is that I was young. I was like 16, 17, 18 years old when I was doing a lot of this work, but I looked a lot older. I looked like I could pass for 24, 25 easy. So I walk into these book publishers and I would, I, I remember my art name is Michael Wolf. Yeah. Right. So I walk into the publishers and I'd see all these, these guys there, or girls there, whoever that were the interns or the new hires that are mostly like 20, 24 in that range. And I was about the same age. Well, I looked the same age, even though I was a lot younger. And I would walk in and, and say, hi, I'm the fixer. Right. I'm Mr. Wolf. Only call me Mr. Wolf. To like tell him, I am above you. I am the guy. Yeah, and you were you. super young at this age. I was young. But you I had that a, voice, though, too. Yeah, 16 years old. Call me Mr. Wolf. And I would actually have some fights with some of the people. Something that really annoyed me is I had to maintain control over that. That whole aspect was very important because they had to respect you and fear you a little bit because you didn't want them to think of you as somebody on the same level as you. And you didn't want them to know you're six years younger than they are and that you're still in high school. So I had to go in with this strong thing. I had nice clothes. I had Armani suits. I spent money on the best stuff. And I'd walk in and some say, someone would like, I'd be working there on a project, helping them, you know, saying, now I've done all these illustrations. I'm working with them on the book, putting it together, make sure everything's okay. And I brought along my paint kit in case anything had to be fixed up because if I was called in as a fixer, it was the last minute and that work had well, to be done. What were some of those projects that you had to go in and fix? I, w I don't want to say specific ones yet because I got to look at my contracts. Yes, yeah, because I had no to make contracts that were non-disclosure contracts. Say no more, dude. But I know let's how say goes. some of the some of the biggest names in the children's book industry. I believe that, dude. And I'm I am going to publish them as soon as I feel confident and I have somebody look over some of this paperwork I have with it. I want to publish some of this work that I did that nobody knows about. You know, one thing I'd be curious to talk about, and I'm curious if you want to talk or if we could talk about it, but. Can we talk about your relationship with Alex or Alex sure. and how that happened? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Um, I saw it like as I was doing my research for this, I saw a bunch of stuff, man. So I, I want to hear the real deal from you, dude. All right. Well, let's start this off. For anyone that's watching this that doesn't know who Alec Monopoly is, you're probably blessed you don't know who he is yet because you're about to find out. And I'm sure you're going to go look online and think, wow. This, this guy is making millions of dollars selling paintings? Yeah. And a lot of it's due to me. And um, I only refer to myself as Dr. Frankenstein, and Alec Monopoly is my monster. Mm. And as they say in, in any monster movie or any monster story, the monster usually tries to kill the creator. They try to go after the creator. They always attack their creator. And I was a big part of the creation of this Alec Monopoly monster. He is one of the top-selling pop artists in the world right now. I mean, he's not cause-level. He could have been, but he is not cause-level. He's not Banksy-level, but he could have been. You know, he's not, he's, and a lot of it is, is he took the wrong directions, and he followed a lot of my directions, and he did a lot of the artwork. I would design the artwork for him. I discovered him because I had to go out to California for a project, 
and I ran into him at a at this online network streaming thing that, that was going on. He was a guest on there. And at the time, he was he was a relatively unknown person. He had art in a gallery. He had art in a gallery there called the other gallery. I mean, or something like that. You know, the other gallery. Not the good one, the other gallery. And um, he was in that gallery. That was the name. And um, and I started, I had done the, the Mr. Monopoly on the Wall Street Cross. Because at the time, I was doing Occupy Wall Street. Like 2008, 2009 is when Occupy Wall Street was going. And I attended this blue shirt. And I painted the Mr. Monopoly on the Cross to wear to those those um, live streaming things I was doing. And he saw, man, that's like so totally cool that you have that shirt. Yeah, I brought along to finish it today. Wow, can I can I can you do a drawing of that for me so I could like like project it and do a picture in an alley or something? Yeah, no problem. So I drew him one out and he said and I said, if you want to, you can sign the shirt because it'll make you famous, because I'm an Occupy Wall Street being seen by hundreds of thousands of people. Why don't you put your name across the back? We'll call it a collaboration because I collaborate with a lot of artists because I try to make artists famous other than me. And he put his name on the back and I finished the shirt. He signed it like six times on it. He signed it on one of the collars, on one of the cuffs. He signed it all over to make sure everyone knew that he was involved in this because he knew it would be seen on streaming. And um, I, before I left there meeting him, I drew him pictures of the Monopoly guy. I drew probably 15 different Mr. Monopolies. One, he's late weightlifting bags of money. When he's spray painting some pictures. When he's running and spray painting. And I did a whole bunch of these designs, which basically he projected and traced with other assistants, Yet, because he seemed to always gravitate towards other people to do his work for him. Mm. And um, I started feeding him the drawings, the basic designs, the drawings, the direction, the mentoring, up until about 2014. So... It was about five solid good years of being his mentor, director, designer of his paintings. And just things went south. There's a lot of stories about it. Um, the, I would say that um, in this live stream thing, I don't want to say how it all ended because I, I don't want to go how it all ended yet, but I have every yeah. text message. I have everything that happened. Yeah, no, a thousand And I'm just saying that I, when I broke off, it was a bad situation. And I actually told the world, hey, I was the one that did these designs. Here's my original drawings. And as it turned out now, you know, I am doing some of those designs now and I never intended it to promote me. I was thinking maybe if people want, I was still a YouTube person, not as much as I was. But I said, you know what? I bet people would, would buy my regular paintings. That'd be nice because I was a Disney artist for years. Oh, yeah. But dude. nobody wanted the Disney ones. Everyone wanted the, the same Mr. Monopoly stuff I did for Alec Monopoly. So this day, it's mostly Mr. Monopoly. And I got him to do Uncle Scrooge McDuck and Richie Rich. And Richie Rich was perfect for me because I was a kid. I had the most yellow hair. And Mike, bring over that picture. I'll hold up the picture. That could be a kind of fun thing to hold up. And I remember, like, you had the Richie Rich uh, comic books, too. Oh, I got tons of them here. The original ones that I read on the farm. And one of my particular ones is Richie Rich always had covers that featured money. Like, it would be raining diamonds and it would have an umbrella. Or he'd be digging, like, in the garden where the tomatoes are. And he'll, like, uncover oh, wow. money. Yeah, so, oh, Yeah. Very blonde, dude. <laughs> I was the blondest kid ever. That's crazy. Half American Indian. I was the blondest American Indian kid in history. But I have American Indian eyes. My eyes are, are very American Indian looking. And I discovered early on, if I wore glasses, it magnified my eyes. So mm. they didn't look the same. But when I don't have glasses on, I think I look badass too. Like, how do you feel about like what transpired with Alec? You know, like, what would you wish would have been different? 
Sorry if that was a loaded question. Wow. No, it isn't. It isn't. It's. I, I'm going to seem shallow and odd by saying this. I wouldn't have done it any other way. Okay. And the reason is, is he was my monster. Mm. And I always wondered, I help a lot of artists, talented artists become famous artists. I help them get established, established toy designers, established YouTubers with channels. I thought, this guy has minimal talent at all. I wonder what would happen if I took someone like minimal talent and, and let them more or less be a conduit of my designs and art, my, all my expertise for 30 years at that time in art. And I've been doing this for 40 years. Yeah. What would happen if I just be the ghost artist, the ghost writer for him? How many designs did you do? Probably 150 to 200. Oh, wow. But he did multiple paintings of every design. I see what you're saying. So probably, resp- probably responsible for several thousand paintings, even... Even to this day, he's using some of my designs over again. I can't even imagine how many times he painted a lot of those things. So, <laughs> but again, he was my monster. And I realized as things went along, he was becoming a monster. Yeah, where did it go wrong? Is, um, I know. Um, basically, I will, I could, you know, it's, I probably should just say it. I have not said this publicly what the big thing is. Is, is he started selling people that I didn't think he should be selling. Mm. He started selling paintings to people that I didn't think he should be dealing with. And and I would say, I'm, I would be okay selling to someone that dealt in. See, see, my director is saying, you should be careful. I don't see anything wrong with selling somebody to a, somebody that was doing weed dealing or something. But people that are like cartel level type stuff, mm. I would not touch or go anywhere near. And he started brushing with that, and I didn't want to be associated with that because it can be he, dangerous. It could be dangerous if it ever got, if it ever started getting investigated or went public, or if that if some big thing happened. I didn't want to be pulled into this as a like co-conspirator or someone behind Alec at the time. Yeah. That's what really tore. The, the rug out from under me doing anything with him is I didn't like the direction his art was taking the people he was selling to. Mm. And, um, yeah. And I, I know there were a lot of things there. Yeah. We don't have to go, but you get an idea, but you get an idea that let's just say he started dealing. He just morally didn't line up with you. Now the moralities of the people didn't line up and I don't care who he sells to. I don't care if he sells to whoever. I just don't want to be part of it anymore. That's Because fair. it's going to go south, and I don't want to take any of that punishment for that going south. As soon as I realized it, I said, you shouldn't be doing this right now. And what do you say to that? Basically, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Well, damn, dude. I know. So, <laughs> But, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that with me, too. Yeah, and some of it backfired on him because of that. And I knew it could happen, and I didn't want anything... My whole life is it get to a point where I'm working on a project or doing something, and I really look at it and say, do I really want to be associated if something goes south? That's why I stopped doing anything with McDonald's regarding Mr. Monopoly. I wasn't even working directly with McDonald's. I was working for promotional agencies yeah. on that. And at the end of the day, though, you can only control what you do. You know what I mean? So anything that anybody else does, like Alec or anybody, like it lands on them. You can advise and give as much input, which you did, but, you know, like at the end of the day, like he's going to go through his own journey and... You know, 
deal with that as it comes. And I and I only I don't go on publicly maligning him or anything. I really don't, unless they speak out against me. Yeah. And then it's a free for all for me. <laughs> okay. Remember, yeah. I'm a wolf here. Yeah. So I so um, I would say you know God bless him. He's making art. I'm making art. Who cares? He's doing well. Let him go for it. And um, I don't care what his lifestyle is or what he's doing or whatever. But I did advise him the best I could. I gave him a lot of good advice early on, which is basically driving his whole career right now. Yeah. And um, if he didn't have that mentoring early on of me, it would have not gone well for him. He just didn't understand. And one of the important things about artists, because I'm an artist, yeah, is if you're an artist, your art is valuable for one thing is your history as an artist. Who are you as an artist? Where did you go in your life? Where were you born? What did you do as a child? Who were the women you loved? Where are the places you traveled? What were the adventures you had that contributed and made you what you You are? are. Yeah. You know, and I have the richest life of of things that have happened to me, which I've never gone forward and said. I never said anything about my background as a child. I never said anything about my early art career. And that's the thing. I feel like we are just scraping. No, just, yeah, it's such a scraping. But then you get someone like Alec Monopoly, he had no background. So that's a problem is a lot of artists are really good artists out there. Just you go to Art Basel, which is the biggest art show in America every year. You walk around, wow, this is all pretty damn good art. Wow, look how beautiful this art is. Look at this. Wow, that's brilliant. And, and you'll walk up and the paintings are priced, you know, 600 bucks, 700 bucks. Tell me something about the artist. Oh, he grew up in New York City on Staten Island. He went to PS 182. Well, that's why movies are great, dude, because yeah. people watch them because of the backstory, you know? Like, that's yeah. why superheroes, like, look at yeah. Batman, classic yeah, example. Yeah. It's all you know? backstory. Yeah. Spider Man, all backstory. And they really harp on that backstory, you know, being bitten by the radioactive spider and, you know, everyone dying that he loved and all that stuff. And the thing is, when you start sharing your backstory, you might be surprised to find out how many people start to relate to you, you know? I am starting to tell my backstory now. Because I decided I can't go through my life and our career right now and not just say, there's a lot to my backstory that makes me who I am right now. Yeah. And it taught me a lot early on. And unfortunately, a lot of it early on was stuff that wouldn't play, wouldn't have played well on the internet before. Mm. If I said in 2005 when YouTube started, hey, look at this funny toy. Isn't this funny? See this chicken? I used to slaughter these things by the truckload. You know the baby chicks, like this little baby chick toy? I used to dump hundreds of these into a wood chipper all the time. Yeah, no, I totally you know, understand it, that. But, but it, it was, was who you are, though. It, it was who I am, and it wasn't anything wrong. Everything I did as a child, there was nothing wrong yeah. with it. Yeah, and I don't. It's I hope still, you don't view it like that. No, I don't. I don't in any way. That's the whole thing. I never felt any remorse or anything that I did anything bad. Because if I mean honestly, like doing that, you were actually helping a lot. You were feeding a lot of people. Yes, you know, and we fed local people. You know, and you have no idea what it meant to me as a kid, as a small kid, when that realization came over me that that ground out there made that corn, which fed those cows, which made the milk, which fed the chickens, which made those eggs, you know, that that I was delivering to these little restaurants and people in the area so they could eat. We were actually providing for not for our farm, but for all the, the communities, the small communities around there. If you had an opportunity to talk to a younger yourself, knowing everything you've been through and what you've done and accomplished now, what would you say to a younger you? Oh, my God. That's that's been the biggest torment of my life right now. Yeah, just, just 
I can. I could say one thing right now about that is I would say almost every single day, I think, I was supposed to take over that farm when I was 16. They wanted me to drop out of high school and take over the farm at 16 years old because my uncle was 85. His wife was in her 80s and didn't have anybody that was going to even have anything to do with it. I could have done it. I could have turned the farms into a big operation. It would have saved the farms. They would have kept their farms and wouldn't have been sold for McMansions and these big developments that are there now. And I could have done it. And they raised me to do it. Do you feel guilty for not doing it? No. I don't feel guilty. I don't regret anything that's happened in my life. I really don't. But it's like I wish I had two lives to live. I wish I could have lived this one the way through and then lived that one too. Mike, when I look at you, you're somebody to me who's lived a hundred lives, dude. I don't know. There's see, there is there is what you're all missing is everything that ties this all together is this little bit of interaction I had with the shaman of the Penobscot Indian Nation. Yeah. Who I had so little interaction with. I had a I had a ceremony under a moon. See, I don't want to get too emotional right now, but it's just now I've been recounting everything to you. Yeah. I don't feel I abandoned them. I feel I've made a choice that was a good choice. I made the right choice at the time for myself. But now, looking back, maybe it wasn't the right choice. And I think the only thing that has sustained me is this old shaman guy, this old spiritual leader of the Penobscot Indian, Senaba, said to me when I was 16 years old that I that someday I would become a powerful person. I would become a shaman. I was like, I'm the whitest kid on the planet. And when he told me that, I thought he was, he was wrong. And um, I, I told him, I said, you're wrong. I actually said to him, you're wrong. Can't be. And he said to me, he said, you will be an important man one day. You are going to speak and they will hear your voice in every corner of the world, and they will listen to your voice. They will listen to your words. And some days you will tell the story of what you have experienced with me and your youth. This was when I was 16. This is before I made that decision. And that was the night I had to choose that decision. But he was right. He was right, because there was no internet. And it was, it was the way it was put. See, you don't... You don't know the backstory of what led me to that moment. I know. Is that I had I had killed a wolf when I was 13 years old. A wolf was attacking a two-year-old that was on the farm, one of my relatives. And and wolves were very rare in Maine. Oh my God, they were they were an endangered species. They're even today there probably can't be more than a couple dozen wolves actually living in the wild in Maine. Because they they remember they're the they're the villain in every story. You know, the big bad wolf, you know, the the three little pigs, the wolf that blew the house down. And wolf you took one out. Hated. What? You took one out? Yeah, I, I beat one to death with my bare hands. That's I killed crazy. It. And I got all cut up and I needed to be stitched up. I had bites all over me and everything. And um, I got a ceremony for having done that. So Senaba, who was still at his faculties, and he was he's a relation of my grandmother's. And... um he came out to the farm and he gave me a ceremony, a wolf ceremony, where, he, where the wolf spirit is placed inside me forever, two wolf spirits. He claimed that wolves were unique as a spirit guide, a spirit thing. There are two wolves. And 
And that night, I actually, for a moment, when they were putting the blood on me, because you had to save blood from it, when I, I had to skin it myself, they saved some of the blood, and he mixed it up with stuff. He put it on my face, and he put it on the backs of my hands and the tops of my bare feet. They wrapped the wolf's hide around me that I had skinned myself, and he, he gave me the wolf spirit. He said, inside you now are two wolf spirits. Okay, there's one that's hungry and wanting, you know, and desirous and envious and hateful. That's the earth wolf. That's the wolf of the earth, the one that people often refer to as the dark wolf. And the wolf of the, the, wolf of the spirit in the sky, the wolf of the ancestors, the one that is compassionate, loyal, trusting. Um, and you have both wolves. And he, and he, so I, both of those wolf spirits, that's a long explanation of what that whole story is with the wolf spirits. Yeah. But I had them placed inside me. And I, I thought that this was the coolest thing. When I'm 13 years old, that was the coolest thing. But when I was 16, I had to have one more ceremony associated with that, the two wolf ceremony. And there's a meme on the internet about, about the two wolves. Yeah. You were telling me a little yeah, bit about this earlier. each person are two wolves. And it was, there's a meme written about it online, this whole thing. And it was something that I unfortunately spawned years ago not knowing it because I'd written my story on something called Usenet. I wrote it out somewhat, like a little bit, and somebody could say, could you get more details? So I wrote out the whole details of it. And some religious guy that I was talking to at the time made it into a short story that he included in a book or something. Oh, wow. But he didn't say it the right way exactly. He got the right gist of it, but not quite is that... He put it like inside each person. A young Indian boy asked his grandfather, uh, what, you know, what about these wolf spirits? And he said, there are inside each person are two wolf spirits. It isn't. It's if you're a wolf spirit person. Or, and it said he did a description like I did. And the... I'm sorry. It's, no, it's okay, Mike. No, so... Talk to me. See, it means something directly to me. It was an internet meme people used to read years ago and think it was nothing. So um, the boys, the grandpa, he says, which wolf takes over? The, the dark wolf or the white wolf? Which is the one that takes you over? He says, the one you feed. Mm. And I never realized that. I told that story later, and he retold the story wrong, in a way. And I was never told it was which one ever one you feed. I was told that they are a balance. They are two that live together and work together in harmony and must always be in harmony in you. You can never forsake one wolf for the other mm. because you'll be out of balance. You could become a very evil, wicked person because the power of the wolf is so strong. You can become a great leader and great person, but you have to always be always nurture the dark side because you have to realize people will take advantage of you. They'll cheat you. You have to be strong when you need to be strong. From my not. perspective, it seems like you've mastered that balance. Though. And I didn't quite master it. What happened is, is that I was given a, one more ceremony, but probably sent up a died a short time after that. And it was a wolf spirit ceremony. And he tricked me or my grandmother and mother. And he apparently was in on this. And my uncle they wanted me to go to Maine in January. Cold time I, of year. Yeah, my grandmother told me that they were going to sell their cabin on this lake, the shotgun cabin where I shot that bear up there. 
break in in the cabin. That's what, I had shot and killed that bear and skinned it myself, and Senaba gave me the bear spirit, the bear spirit inside me too. And he claimed it was the bear spirit coming out of me that gave me the strength and the courage to beat the wolf to death. It was a big wolf too. I believe it, dude. I, I mean, even a, even a little wolf is in, yeah. insanely intimidating. Well, it's so funny because there's so many animals up there people think are wolves. They, think, they see coyotes. Coyotes are very wolf-like looking, and there's a lot of coyote-wolf hybrids around. Yeah. But a real wolf is a very large animal. And I have to say that after I did that, after I beat it to death with my hands, and the farmhands pulled me off of this thing, they took me out to a barn, they stripped my clothes off and put me Jeez, in a stock tank, dude. and they washed me all over because they didn't want me to get rabies or something. And they covered me with iodine, this yellow iodine, all over me, and they stitched me up like I was a blanket. I had big stitches. And... um then they called the, the reservation, you know, they called to find Cenobuck because he often wasn't there. It's all another story. Yeah. And he came out and he gave me this wolf the, this wolf ceremony at the farm. But I thought that was it. I thought that would be the end of it. That was when I was 13. But then when I was 16, I was sort of given false premises, false pretenses to go to Maine to have one more ceremony with Cenobuck. And it was at my grandmother's cabin. They set up a bonfire outside the cabin, which I didn't know, down by the lakefront. And um, I thought in January it's going to be the hardest time to get out there to this this log cabin in Maine. And um, But they had plowed, got the road plowed out to it, and electricity was still working. And um, it, actually the power lines were down, they had a generator going. So... Um, I went out there and there was already a, a you know a vehicle there and we went inside and there was Senaba with this young Indian girl. Oh, wow. And um, I was surprised. I said, "What is this?" He said, "Tonight is the night of the wolf moon." Oh wow! January full moon. It was called the wolf moon. That's crazy, dude. Well, I didn't know anything about this. And 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 um, he said, "You have to get the wolf moon ceremony." I, I never got one when I was a child. He said, when I killed a wolf as a child, I got the wolf spirit ceremony, what you experienced. Yeah. What I, happened never from- got the, I never got the wolf moon ceremony because there was no one alive to give it to me that knew mm-hmm. it. Um, I won't go into all the details because that could go on for another hour and there's not a yeah. lot of time here. <laughs> what is Mike Mozart working on right now? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's something. I am working on a few commissions I have. Okay. Right now, I have my artwork is going to be at Foxwoods Casino. It's going to be featured in a shop right on their gaming floor. Literally, you walk out either door, you walk right into where the gaming is, right there. By the entrance of the concert venue, the, it's a shop is called the Candy Shop, and it, it doesn't sell candy. Well, I don't know if it, has, it might have some candy in there somewhere, but I haven't seen it. It sells very high-end Nike sneakers and very high-end toys and collectibles from the past. Like mint in box Castle Grayskulls that are like three grand or five grand for one mint in box toy from the era. And they sell a lot of merchandise there, and all that wall space there is mine. Incredible, dude. Yeah, so that's one. That wait, wait, that's only one thing. What else is going I'm on? I'm still doing I'm still doing commissions, which I'm finishing right now, which have been a major problem. That's something else too, that's a big part of this story, is that when twenty nineteen was around, in August of twenty nineteen, I fell and hurt my knee. Mm. Okay, and I need knee surgery to fix my knee. And not only did I need that, but I got sepsis. Oh, wow. But I go over in one day. That's another reason I found out that I had this whole super immunity thing going on. And yeah, um, most people don't 
survive septus. It's something that's very serious and kills a lot of people. Or if they recover, they're disabled by it sometimes. I get over like one day like it's nothing. (laughs) The other things I have going on. So I have the casino thing going on. I have the casino with Foxwoods Casino. It's the largest casino in North America, and I'm going to be featured right there, right in one of the most coveted spots, right in the middle of this grand, beautiful, biggest casino in North America place. That's a beautiful thing, dude. Huge honor, huge honor. So I have that going on. I have offers from a company in France that wants me to do one of their licensed character properties. Oh, wow. If they want to develop into a theme park and everything, I don't want to mention the character right now, but it could be a big thing. Very fair. But I'm trying to get my few commissions out of the way first that I have. The reason I have lingering commissions goes back to 2019. I had fallen and hurt my leg, right? needed surgeries to fix it. But then by the time that was all up and going and I was out of commission doing my art, we led right into the, right into the pandemic. Mm. We've got a, already got to be February, March, and everything in Connecticut shut down. So not only did everything in Connecticut shut down, but all of the suppliers shut down. I couldn't get my metal flakes. I couldn't get the art resin product that goes on the canvases. I couldn't get canvases. All the non-essential stores like Michael's and Joanne's, all the places shut down. Their mm. mill order operations ran out of products immediately because they sourced them from other countries around the world, and they were oh, all wow. shut down. So I went 16 to 18 months, a year and a half at least, with no no materials to make my paintings. How did that make you feel overall? Horrible. I kept busy as I could, and that was a time when I discovered Esco, Troy, who's mm. one of the, the greatest artists I ever met in my life. And you'll see some of the paintings around here, which I'm sure you'll add some of those pictures to your, your yeah. uh, earlier. But um, what I did is I scavenged art supplies. I traded with other artists that I could find that had anything to be willing to trade. I looked for ads on Craigslist that had professional materials. I would buy things online. Say Amazon would list that they have some certain rare art supply available. I would buy it all, and then they'd say, oh, it's back ordered for six months, you know, which is supposed to be in stock for them to even post it. So I, I couldn't get anything. So I did is I did a lot of paintings where I painted on old canvases. I would go on Craigslist and buy old existing paintings that Grandma did. Oh, wow. And I would paint over them and use the canvas and the frame and sometimes I would do them where if I got like a nice picture of a waterfall and a country house, I would paint Mr. Monopoly and a girl into it having a picnic. Oh, that's so Just, cute. So I did a bunch of those at that time. And Troy, Esco, and the few other artists I was mentoring, I let them have anything I had left that was real premium art supplies. I didn't have enough to finish my own paintings anyway, but they could paint plain paintings without metal flakes or resin and have something to further their careers, at least something they could maybe sell. So I literally... Set, Sold or delivered almost zero paintings for two years almost until I got all my supplies back. Then the then the metal flake factories came back online and I mixed some metal flakes in this certain medium that I used to put on the canvas that keeps it sparkly. And just as soon as things are going, I got my first orders in. I can finally do these old commissions from when the pandemic started. Putin bombed the factories out of existence. My stuff came from the Ukraine. You couldn't catch a wind, dude. No, Jesus. I couldn't believe it. I just wanted to paint. And I just had a little bit, and I delivered a couple paintings, and I determined not the factories aren't coming back online. I have to find something substitutes. else. Yeah, substitutes. And it took six months for me to get materials from all over the world and get the substitutes. A lot of the, the materials I used were from factories that disappeared. Oh, wow. I bought stuff from South Korea and Japan. They closed down for the pandemic, and then they never came back to life. There were small companies. They closed down. All the car manufacturing shut down worldwide. Remember what a car shortage was? Like, yeah. So no cars. So now I couldn't get the metal flakes. That's crazy. It's like everything. And I finally, right now, at this precise moment, 
have every possible material I need to finish all my paintings. You're back in business. I'm dude. back in business. Everything, everyone wants everything at once, and I'm trying to juggle everybody. Okay, I got all your stuff. I'm making them as fast as I can. I don't want them bad. I have to finish the ones for Foxwoods Casino, which which I'm trying to get to smaller people than first as a priority. But the casino has to have paintings, so they have a lot of the paintings I had as residual paintings here. But and then moving during the pandemic here. Oh my gosh! Because I can't the other even building, imagine. the other building had major structural problems with water pouring in it, and um, I had to find a, this beautiful place on the Connecticut River under a beautiful suspension bridge. I had to find that, and this took me months of sorting and moving all the stuff here and getting the set set back up to be workable. It was like this two and a half year ordeal of coming around to this point now where I can finally make, draw, paint, create everything that I really want. If someone wanted to reach out to you to work with you or commission you for a painting, how could they do it if they could? They could they could contact me on Instagram. Okay. Private messages because they're open to everybody. They can message. They can um, contact me on Twitter, private messages. And um, I am taking limited commissions. It have to intrigue me. And I do have a few paintings for sale. Some of the Kyles are available. I don't have a lot of paintings available for sale. Oh, wow. Except the Kyles. I don't think there's any more available paintings. I've either sold them all or the casino has them, Foxwoods. And um, I am a real artist. I am sitting here alone, making all my own paintings myself. I sketch them out. I paint them. I finish them. I metal flake them, put the resin on, everything. Well, Mike here, the other Mike here helps me resin the paintings. That's a two-person operation. You really need two people to apply mm. the resin. But everything else here, if you see anything here that's art, it's all mine. And you know what? Last thing, dude. What's next for Mike Moe's art? I would say right now is... AI. Oh, wow. And I have been one of the greatest illustrators, artists, most productive artists in history, producing artwork. Probably more artwork than any commercial artist or fine artist. I just produce a lot of art. Personally, it's me. The commercial art I had assistance on, but I still did all the important parts of it. For the fine art, everything is mine. So if you're buying something, it's me. There's pictures of me working on it and everything. But the um, AI is something that I am become a genius at. And there's only one reason I have been working so hard at it is I'm not using it to create artwork. I'm using it to recreate my life as a child. Oh, wow. And I have. I have a lot of photographs of my life growing up in Maine and running the, the moonshine dis- distillery operation they had there in their barn, you know, and taking care of the animals and what the farm looked like and pictures of with the Indians, my interactions. And I have regenerated them all as amazing photorealistic recreations in AI that look like you're right there. And now with the technology to animate them and move them like a real shot video, I want to tell my story somehow. And the pandemic derailed the documentary that was being planned. Still might happen, a real film documentary. But there's enough things about my life that I can tell in AI that Mm. would be, I just want to tell the story. I want it out there. I don't have to make money from it. I just want to tell the story. If somebody wants to run it and make the documentary themselves, I have all the material and I have all the AI material ready so they can actually use it as models. And I have the other thing that you're missing is when I was in rural Maine, when you have no television, no radio, and you grew up with old world people with old world ways, the American Indians still had their ways from before the white man came and the Scandinavians had their ways from when they first came over. An important part of their culture was storytelling. Mm. When it's when it's eight o'clock at night in the winter time, and the snow is blowing, and there's no books, there's no electricity except a candle 
burning there or the fire in the fireplace. These had traditions of storytellers that would 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 regale you. They would excite you and tell you these exciting stories passed down through hundreds of years of family tradition. And I have hundreds of those stories. Yeah, I don't know a better storyteller than you, dude. Yeah, and well, I learned the tradition of storytelling from the storytellers. And I learned the... Um, the ways to present them from my artwork and from my work with doing TV commercials and YouTube videos and everything else. And I think I'm ready. Now that I'm 60, I am ready to tell the stories. And I probably have 150 to, to 300, I don't know how many, I've never counted them all, that I listened to numerous times and I could retell perfectly now, you know, 40 years later, 45 years later, 50 years later, that I heard as a child about these great Viking adventures that happened in the old world and their absolute belief that Odin and Thor and all these all these mythological creatures and people weren't mythological to them. They were real people that traveled here from another planet. You know, the American Indians and their stories of the great spirits of the earth and how yeah. they interacted. I have all those stories, and most of them aren't available online and don't exist except through my memory. Dude, like as I was stories. as I was prepping for this, dude, I just no. going down everything about mm -hmm. you, dude. It's Trust me, I see all the stories, and I can't even imagine the stories I don't know. And I know there's just so yeah. many of them. Yeah, it's so funny. I'm just looking at them. So I will I thank you very much for coming. Thanks for <laughs> – I hope this will make a great podcast. I think it will be a lot of fun, I hope people listen to the end of it. But, yeah, no, I appreciate you having me today, dude, yeah. and this has been a lot of fun. And that's a wrap, dude. <laughs> for real this time awesome <laughs> let's go this was grody the max man fantastic this was bitching <laughs> dude dude, dude.